Hello, everybody. It's Sukade Yaro here, and you're listening to another episode of Year of Blank, Year of Stories. Yes, I really need to get back on top of these episodes. But, it's going to be a bit tougher considering new job and everything. I think I've talked about that already. But it's a new month. New book. I already did the math, which I talked about last episode. You were there while I did the math for how much I'm going to have to read every episode and all that. But before we fully just jump into the book, I have some little thingies I can talk about. Um, so for my new job at school, there's a trip this Friday, which is like... Not saying where to, because even though you don't know my real name or my appearance, no one wants to have some random creepo just popping up at a location where children are, where, like, people are, try and find someone. Just like, do you know who this is? Just creepily in the location. See? I did good at being vague. Look at me. But, um... There's a trip for my class, which is like a tour, and then we get to spend the rest of the day doing whatever we want in that area, and (laughs) it's this Friday, and I requested off, and it was approved, and the schedules for my job get posted like every Tuesday, so this week's schedule comes out yesterday, and I go to check because I'm bound to be on there by now because I've been oriented and all that. And I look at the schedule, and I have off every single day but Friday. The day of the trip, the day I have off approved for. So then I message message my boss, like, hey, I'm scheduled to work Friday, but... Like, on the verge of tears, anxiety through the roof. And they replied, like, oh, just come in Saturday instead of Friday. And I was like, same hours as Friday? And they were like, yes, ma'am. And I, and I, and I sent thanks, because with the platform we use for schedule and conversation, then you can react with a thumbs up, and that means thanks, so I did that. <laughs> but dudes, you do not know how distressed I was. It felt like my world had ended because I am a person that is very determined to not get their hopes up for things that are uncertain, but I failed this time. I got my hopes up because it seemed like everything was working out and then it wasn't anymore and I was very upset, but it did work out because my boss is so chill. My boss is the best. Well, they're they're the RGM, so they're like everyone's boss. And then there's, of course, shift managers. So, you know. Um, but, like, I was so upset that I thought I wasn't going to be able to go on this trip. Because we've known about this trip collectively as a class for, like, months. And I was prepared for... Well, not prepared, prepared, because... I've only been, I am a checklist person, so I'll write a checklist of things I need to prepare 
and I'll cross-check with a bunch of other people. So I cross-checked with my friends, and they were not that helpful. They were like, well, this is what you're bringing, so you should just go with what you think you need. That's not what I was asking, dog. I'm asking, like, do you think there's anything else I need, or am I good? <laughs> but they did give some suggestions that I hadn't thought of that I put on my checklist, because that was like, yeah, that would be a good idea to have on me. So then I got home from school, and I went to my mom, and I was like, so you signed the permission slip for that trip and all that, and we're learning about what we need to bring and what we can bring and what we need to wear, and I told her the stuff, and I was like, so I wrote a checklist so that I can know, and I tell off my checklist, and she was like, you're going to be more prepared than I would be for this trip. And I, I tend to, like see every potential situation because I don't know it is very highly likely that I just have undiagnosed ASD which is autism spectrum disorder or like I'm on the autism spectrum so <laughs> wait don't quote me on the ASD thing. I just realized I might be wrong. But I might be on the autism spectrum. So I'll just go with that. So <laughs> lately I've been having more sensory issues. Like with my hands when typing on a keyboard. Or like hearing or I'll just get overstimulated. And since it's going to be like a 12 hours. Like 4 hours total on a bus. 12 hours like out of house and all that and I was like okay so I'm gonna prepare and I have medical gloves that I will use that help like me tough through over stimulation with my hands when I really need to do stuff and bringing my headphones obvi because they have a noise canceling feature that will help if I get like vocally not vocally Whatever the fancy word is for hearing. Like that sensory thing. And I brought, I'm bringing my little Togepi plush. Because that's like a comfort item that can help calm me down. I like squish it gently. I squish it gently because I love Togepi so much. If I hurt Togepi, I would probably jump out a window. Don't jump out windows. Try not to get Spotify to yell at me. <laughs> what? But also, I like being prepared for any situation because that brings relief. So I'm bringing pain meds because I've been getting more headaches lately and I don't want to be suffering through a headache all day. Snacks because we're going to be in a park for several... Eh, that's vague enough. We're going to be in a park for several hours. Um, I am female, so if you're female, then you know. Well, AFAB. I'll say that so it's more inclusive. Then you know what else we gotta bring. I'm not saying it explicitly because I feel like Spotify might like scream in my face and call me a little bitch. <laughs> um, water, obviously water. Charging cable, because one of my friends is bringing a portable charger, so they'll let us use 
the charger because I'm going to be sticking with two of my friends when we're there. Um, what else? Hand sanitizer, just in case. Band-aids, antiseptic wipes. I said pain meds. Cough drops. I'm bringing cough drops. Um, I, hmm. I'm bringing a book for the bus ride, but I currently have my book about Pluto, like the planet. But I might switch that out for Beneath the Moon, which I might read some of those stories for minisodes. I... I really should, like, think about that fully, like, if I want to commit to that, if it would be useful. Like, if I do minisodes for this year, what would I do for future years? You know. Um, I'm bringing a poncho because it's supposed to rain. Or not supposed to, but highly likely that it will rain. I'm not going to bother with sunblock because both my teacher and one of my friends are bringing it. Hmm. I think that's all about the trip. But, uh, let me check my bag. Oh, yeah, I'm bringing a different shirt because mandatorily for what we're doing, we have to be wearing jeans and a polo during the tour, but then we can change when we're, like, out of the tour so that we can be more comfortable doing whatever we so please. But, of course, the outfit that we wear outside the tour still has to be school dress code. Uh. Hmm. Money. I'm bringing money, because why wouldn't you bring money? I think that's all I've got. Not for the whole episode, obviously. We have a book to read. Which, this time around, I'm going to try a lot harder to be acknowledging the author whenever possible. That's not, like, weird like a YouTuber with a sponsorship and they just interject it into every possible moment. Like, you've seen those kinds of YouTubers where it's just like, today we're sponsored by, um, freaking Bounty. And we're going to be doing this painting activity, which I'll be using Bounty towels to take care of drying my brushes and for some great painting methods. And then they just, like, keep saying Bounty throughout the entire thing where it's not even necessary. <laughs> this has, I haven't seen a video like that. It's just like a random example that popped into my head. Um, but I think now's a good time to start on the book. This is the first hardcover book I've read. Not like in my entire life. I've read hardcover books before, but like for this podcast. The other ones have all been, like, paperback. So, this month's book is The Infinite Future by Tim Workus. Which sounds like something a gay person would say to another, to, like, a girl, like, 
Work it. Like, it sounds like work it, but it's workus. Work it. <laughs> I, I'm so sorry. And this is one of those books where it has, like, advanced praise for the infinite future. Like, the freaking reviews on the back. So, just a summary. So, you have to, like, open the cover a little to read the summary of the book. And I did talk about this. This is a book I got from the dollar store. And it looks very promising from, like, the plot basis and stuff. But I've been let down before. Like, there was one from the Dollar Tree that I started reading just on my own in my free time called Okay, Mr. Field. It, I didn't like it. It wasn't for me. Plenty of people liked it, but it wasn't for me because it didn't really have a solid plot. I think I've talked about it before. So I don't want to go too deep into, like, talking about this book. Not this book, but that book. Do you know what I mean? Please know what I mean. I don't, I don't want to dig my grave. <clears throat> so, I'm gonna read this, like, whatever summary this is supposed to be. I can't tell if it's more praise or a summary. An exhilarating and brilliantly unorthodox novel set in Brazil, Idaho, and outer space about an obsessive librarian, a down-at-heel author, and a disgraced historian who together go on the hunt for a mystical, life-changing book and find it. The Infinite Future is a mind-bending Russian doll, a book in which one page-turning novel is wrapped within another. In the first, three people, all adrift in their lives, are flung together by a fascination with the forgotten Brazilian science fiction writer Edward Salgado, McKen Salgado McKenzie. There's Danny, a would-be writer who's been scanned by a shady literary award committee. Sergio, a journalist-turned-sub-librarian in South... Sao Paulo, and Harriet, an excommunicated Mormon historian in Salt Lake City, who claims to have actually corresponded with Salgado McKenzie many years earlier. United by a preternational natural curiosity, this motley trio plunges down a veritable rabbit hole of literary mystery, determined to discover both Salgado McKenzie's true identity and whether his fabled masterpiece, never published, actually exists. Where had his inquiries into the true nature of the universe led him? When the dusty manuscript of the infinite future, Salgado Mackenzie's wonderfully weird magnum opus, is finally unearthed, its story merges in surprising and profound ways with that of our gang of unlikely literary detectives. Part science fiction, part academic satire, and part book lover's quest, this rare and dizzyingly original novel brings the life brings to life the intoxicating and uncanny way that literature can mirror and even shape our actual lives. So I'm going to remove the book cover real quick because, you know, there's a book cover. And at the end, I'll read the about the author, like, end of the book. Not end of this episode because that... Oh, shoot! It's got, like, a cool TW embossed, I think is the term, on the front. So that's cool. Pay 
Penguin Press, New York, 2018. So this is a fairly new book. The Infinite Future. Forward by Tim Workus. Really, this foreword should take place in the lamplit reading room of a classy Victorian gentleman's club. Adjusting. Or better yet, in a grand old house on Christmas Eve where party guests swap strange tales next to a crackling fireplace. As I understand it, those are the two most appropriate locations for receiving a peculiar manuscript whose provenance is nearly as intriguing as its contents. And as it happens, the book you currently hold in your hands began its life as su just such a manuscript. In a perfect world, the story of my first encounter with it would take place in a fittingly mysterious locale. Unfortunately, a real life is rarely so obliging. And so this story, or at least my very small part in it, begins in the refrigerator section of a te Texaco food mart a few blocks from Weller Bookworks in Salt Lake City. Having worked up an appetite giving a reading from, from my first novel at the bookstore earlier that evening, I was currently on the prowl for a local brand of chocolate milk my sister had told me I needed to try before I left town. My flight back to California left first thing the next morning, and so my window of opportunity on the milk was closing fast. A cursory glance at the food mart's glass-stored refrigerators did not bode well. Slim pickings in the dairy department, which, which comprised one shelf of one refrigerator packed, practically hidden behind a rotating rack of $5 DVDs. I was leaving in to get a better look when my phone buzzed. It was Danley Laszlo, an old classmate from BYU. Hi, Danny, I said. I peered into the refrigerator, and in a stroke of good fortune, among the three brands of chocolate milk that the food mart carried was exactly the one I was looking for. Hey, said Danny, do you have a minute? I'd seen Danny in the audience at the reading earlier that evening, but hadn't had a chance to talk to him before the, before the event had ended. Sure, I said. To talk in person, I mean, said Danny. This caught me off guard. I had no idea what Danny Laszlo could want to talk about that couldn't be discussed over the phone, and quite frankly, by that point in the evening, I just wanted some chocolate milk and a good night's sleep. In person, I said, trying to think of the best way to turn him down. I squeezed past the DVD display and, opening the refrigerator door just wide enough to fit my arm through, reached to the back of the single-file line of chocolate milk to select the coldest container from the rear of the refrigerator. Excuse-wise, I was coming up empty. I said, where are you? I'm at the gas station, he said, just out front. I let the refrigerator door swing shut. This gas station? I said. Yeah, he said. I turned around to look out the windowed front of the food mart. Sure enough, Danny Laszlo stood just outside, phone to his ear. He gave me a sheepish, sheepish nod and raised his free hand in a short, business-like wave. Did you follow me here? I said. Well, he said, I needed to talk to you. I didn't know what to say. Chilled pint bottle in one hand, I stood there for a moment, staring dumbly. We were close enough to see each other, but too far away to talk without using our phones, a situation that never fails to make me very uncomfortable. I'll be out in a second, I said, and hung up as quickly as possible. Danny Laszlo and I first met back in 2005 in an undergraduate create, creative writing workshop at BAU. 
I was recently returned. I was a recently returned missionary at the time, still reacclimatizing re- re- to civ- civilian life. I'd gotten back so recently, in fact, that I still sported the unmistakable tan lines that result from wearing a collared shirt and tie in the sun all day, every day. I felt conspicuous and awkward, even, or especially, at BYU. I was relieved, then, on the first day of class, to spot somebody else sporting missionary tan lines of their own. A tall, solidly built guy who would have been a dead ringer for a, been a dead ringer for a young Orson Welles if not for his light blonde hair. I sat in the desk next to him and introduced myself. His, he said his name was Daniel Aslo. I asked him if he'd just gotten back from a mission. He said he had, and a bit more small talk revealed that we had both served in Sao Paulo, Brazil, although in different parts of the city. It quickly became apparent, though, that Danny had little interest in swapping anecdotes of missionary life in Brazil. Instead, he asked me what music I'd been listening to since getting home. I told him the strokes and the white stripes. The shins, a little bit. That's pre-mission stuff, though, he said. What new stuff are you listening to? I told him I was still catching up. You need to be listening to the new pornographers, he said. Twin Cinema just came out a couple weeks ago. Best album of the year. You like Power Pop? And so we talked music until class started. Then, while the instructor, the other students, and I went over course objectives, policy, and scheduling, Danny worked his way through a crossword puzzle he kept screened behind his copy of the syllabus. Based on initial impressions, I expected to become good friends with Danny Laszlo. Over the next three years, however, our acquaintanceship followed an asymptomatic, asymptotic path in which our interactions grew increasingly genial without ever reaching a, true, a state of true friendship. Though chronically affable, Danny maintained a tight seal over the personal details of his life, which kept me and others at a perpetual distance. During this time, I worked as a peer tutor at BYU's Student Writing Center, which employed a team of undergrads, mostly English majors, to dispense unwelcome and occasionally ill-conceived writing advice to our fellow students. When business was slow, the other tutors and I sat around the staff table trading gossip and dog-eared copies of our favorite books. Several of us became good, very good friends, forming a loose cadre that socialized both on campus and off during our time together at BYU. I bring this up because the Writing Center crowd developed a minor fascination with Danny Laszlo. Most of us had classes with him and could testify to the skill with which he camouflaged himself behind a blind of, behind a blind of false transparency. He might widely broadcast his interests and opinions. He loved James Joyce, thought Bob Dylan and singer-songwriters generally were criminally overrated, and he refused to associate with anyone who who'd ever been a member of a high school or collegiate choir. But when it came to concrete details concerning his history or his off-campus lifestyle, he revealed nothing. All of us in the writing center crowd wanted to be his friend, or rather, wanted him to consider us a friend and thereby grant us access to the secret life he concealed so completely. To this end, we repeatedly invited him to our extracurricular parties, and he repeatedly and breezily turned us down. The point is, in our hearts of hearts, none of us believed that Danny's private life would be that much more interesting than any of our own, but still, we wondered. I suppose the, po- I suppose the point of all this is, I knew Danny at BYU, but not extremely well. 
Not surprisingly, we lost touch after graduation, and now ten years later, I was curious to know what he'd been up to in the meantime. Outside the food mart, we shook hands and I asked Danny where he wanted to go to talk. Right here's fine, he said. So we stood a few feet from the entrance to the food mart, in a little gap of cement between the pebble surface garbage and the locked display of propane tanks. Are you sure? I said. Yeah, he said, rubbing his chin. His clothes had that unostentatious but perfectly tailored look that whispers money in in polite undertones. Clothes like that are magic, endowing their wearer with an instant boost to their looks, charm, and credibility. Standing this close to him, though, I could see a ragged, haunted quality clinging to his features. If, when I'd first met him, he'd resembled the useful youthful Orson Welles of the War of the Worlds, publicity stills, publicity stills. Now he looked like Welles at the end of the lady from Shanghai, hollow-eyed and shaken. So how are you? I said, genuinely curious. Fine, he said. Danny had certainly retained his reluctance to discuss any details of his private life. Only with considerable effort did I learn that he was an associate of a prominent Salt Lake law firm, one that even I had heard of. This was a group of attorneys who, by all accounts, shaped the very fabric of the city according to their, or rather their clients, whims. Wow, I said. How do you like it there? It's exhausting, he said. Long hours? I said. Yeah, he said. That's part of it. A car drove slowly past us, pulling in next to the nearest pump. Listen, said Danny. I don't mean to change the subject here. Well, actually, that's exactly what I mean what I mean to do, so let me get to it. You have connections in publishing, right? Kind of, I said. You don't have to be modest, he said. I was not being modest. Anyway, you're better connected than I am, he said, and that's why I wanted to meet this evening. I have a manuscript for you. You wrote a novel? I said. Danny's writing had always impressed and intimidated me, and if he'd written a novel, I'd be very interested to read it. No, I don't write fiction anymore. It's a terrible way to live, he said. No offense. This surprised me. Danny had always looked down on anyone not pursing the so-called artist's path. A dark dark SVU circled around the pump across from us, its headlights briefly shining directly into our eyes. As they did, Danny grimaced, turning his face from the glare and ducking his head, resembling, just for a moment, a cowering dog. This was a much different Danny than the one I'd known at BYU. Somehow all his prickly prickly charisma had become obscured within, within an ashy cloud of melancholy. He blinked his tired eyes. The manuscript, then, I said. What is it? Okay, he said. So, about six years ago, I had an experience that completely changed me. I mean, that's such an empty thing to say, to describe what happened, because people say that kind of thing all the time, but you need to understand that what I'm, that I'm talking about a real and significant change here, like a true shift in who I was. Wow, I said, impressed partly by his willingness to open up like this, but mostly by his ability to do so without disclosing a single specific detail. Yeah, he said, and to describe it externally, you know, the actual external reality of what happened, it doesn't sound that dramatic, but inside, it affected me more than anything else I'd ever experienced, and that's where the manuscript comes in. 
So it's a memoir? I said. Not really, said Danny. There's more to it than that. Part of the manuscript is a translation I did of a story but by this extremely obscure Brazilian science fiction writer, but really it's all kind of wrapped up together. A translation in my own story, I mean. They're inseparable, in my opinion. Huh, I said. The manuscript sounded intriguing. It also sounded completely unpublishable. Honestly, no, he said. Before you weigh in on this book, you have to read it. He pulled his phone from his jacket pocket. What's your email? A spark of Danny's former vitality animated this desperate plea. I gave him my email address. In response, thumbs tapping the screen of his phone, Danny said, I'm sending you a PDF. All right, I said. I'll take a look. My first read-through of the manuscript, while waiting for a much-delayed flight at the Salt Lake City International Airport the next day, prompted a mild panic attack. I had no idea what to make of what I'd just read, and immediately I began formulating an apologetic apologetic email to Danny in which I explained that the whole venture was a lost cause. Luckily, my flight boarded before I could send off the email, because in the meantime, the book's odd memorability had become duly apparent to me. The great Argentine writer Jorge Luis, Luis Borg, Borgs, I guess, once argued that reading Edgar Allan Poe's stories is never as satisfying as remembering Poe's stories. I initially read that sentiment as a gentle, gentle insult, but the more I think about it, the more complimentary it seems. After all, any story that creates a more potent and delightful version of itself in the reader's memory has performed a not insignificant act of over here. So it's been a few days since I've been able to record. I'm gonna finish this makeup episode, hopefully today, but I have work today, so I might not be able to post this week's actual episode. So I'm just going to find where I left off. I can't remember where I left off. Okay, I think I found it. I hadn't heard of the grant before I'd applied, but the prospect of $7,000 thrilled me. I was less thrilled when the contract arrived. Even though I couldn't understand a lot of the legal jargon, I did get the sense that there might be some pretty thick strings attached to the money. I couldn't find much about the YRNG online only that the grant's sponsoring organization was called was a group called the Coalition of Aggrieved Christians, whose name made me nervous. They had virtually no internet presence, which worried me even more. The letter did not did include a contact number, so I gave it a call. When I introduced myself to the man who answered, he sounded glad to hear from me. He said his name was Wayne Fortescue, and his job was to answer any questions I had about the grant. Perfect, I said. What can you tell me about the Coalition of Aggrieved Christians? Our sponsoring organization, he said. You've done some research. Yeah, I said. I couldn't actually find much about them online. 
That's a very deliberate move, said Wayne Fortescue, like he was tr- like he was supposed like it was supposed to impress me. Why? I said. They don't like to toot their own horn, said Fortescue. They're very modest. In short, though, the CAC's mission is to defend and enhance the quality of religious experience in America for folks like you and me. All right, I said evenly, like his answers like his answer hadn't set off all sorts of alarm bells. And what does that involve exactly? Just like a writer, he said, full of questions. I thought I detected a hint of, a, of warning in this response. If you're not comfortable talking about this, I said. Are you kidding me? said Fortescue. I love nothing more than talking about the coalition. Ask me whatever you want. He said it cheerfully, but with a sharp undertone that suggested I should worry for asking any questions at all. Be sorry for asking any questions at all. (laughs) That alone would normally be enough for me to end the conversation right there. $7,000, though. What I'm looking for, I said, is a basic overview of what the Coalition does. Fortescue rattled off a boilerplate response that was high on praise for the Coalition's virtues and low on concrete information regarding what they actually did or believed. I decided to explore a different avenue. I guess my biggest question, I said, is whether the novel I write needs to conform in any way to the Coalition's ideologies, whatever those might be. Oh no, said Fortescue, a little too quickly. Of course not. That's not what this is at all. Not at all. So I can write about whatever I want, I said. I needed an explicit guess. We are here to help you, said Fortescue. I can write about whatever I want, then, I said. The grant committee was very interested in the the novel you proposed. Mormon missionaries in Brazil? That's the novel we would hope you'd write. And that is what I'm planning on writing, I began. Good, interrupted Fortescue. But what I'd like to know is if there's any situation where you guys would, I don't know, ask for your money back or something. I'd meant the question as a joke, but it came out with an involuntary tremor. That rarely happens, said Fortescue, his voice low and soothing. Rarely? I said. There was a grant recipient a few years back, said Fortescue, not missing a beat, who ran into some difficulties with her novel and made some poor choices as a result. Unfortunately, we had to repossess her funding. What kinds of poor choices? I said. I'd rather not say, said Fortescue. Furthermore, papers were signed and I'm obliged to maintain a level of confidentiality regarding the situation. At some point we had slipped into the sinister realm of legalese. I'll be honest, I said. That worries me. Shoot, said Fortescue, all homespun joviality. I've spooked you. Let me assure you that you have no need to worry, Dan. Can I call you Dan? Sure. Dan, I'll level with you, he said, all man to man. That young woman I mentioned, she was not CAC material. Just not a great fit, ultimately. Our mistake as much as hers. But you, my friend, are a whole different story. A whole different story. 
I thought of all the reasons why that response should concern me. Then I thought of how behind I was on my student loan payments. I thought of my donut grease-infused apartment. I thought of the frozen pot pies and instant oatmeal that had, that had made up my primary diet for the past several months. I thought of everything I could do with $7,000. I thanked Wayne Fortescue for his help. I got off the phone, and before I could change my mind, I signed the contract and dropped it in the mail. Now, four days into my trip in Sao Paulo, to Sao Paulo, the money was gone. Student loan payments, travel expenses. The novel was dead in the water, and Wayne Fortescue, still unaware of those last two developments, was not going to be happy. The moment I realized I would never finish my novel, I was sitting in an air-conditioned study room in the Biblio Biblioteca Anita Gar Garibaldi, one of the University of Sao, Sao Paulo's 45 libraries, reading a densely written mono monograph on the city's architecture during the coffee boom years, I turned a page halfway through a chapter critiquing Ramos de, de Azevedo's Teatro Municipal and realized I couldn't bring myself to read another word. It was so much to take in, and the more research I'd done over the, over the past few days, the more research I realized I'd need to do to make the novel even halfway decent. That would have been fine if I hadn't also also finally admitted to myself that I had no interest in writing the novel I'd pitched to the CAC. Not that novel or anything like it. I closed the architecture book and set it back on top of the to-read pile that I ambitiously stacked there when I arrived at the library that morning. Every failure deserves a soundtrack, and on that sorry day at the Bi Biblioteca Anita Garibaldi, mine was There She Goes by the L.A.'s. Laws? Laws. I know you've heard this song before. The album version is a rom-com staple. A jangly, Steve Lilly White, Steve Lilly White produced pop confection. But the band also recorded a live version for BBC Radio that's not as warm or polished. The vocals are rougher, the guitar is more jagged, the production more spare, and it totally skews the feel of the song. The album version has a sweet, wistful vibe to it, but the BBC version, even though it's not that different, sounds like the oral inst instantiation of pure anxiety, especially once the song hits the 140 mark and the backup vocals come in, pleading and echoey. I spent the rest of the morning listening to that song on repeat through a pair of crummy earbuds, drenched in flop sweat. As disappointed as I was by this artistic impasse, I was more worried about the financial consequences of my failure. I thought of the contract I'd signed for the Coalition of Aggrieved Christians, and of all the vague yet sinewy strings attached to the money I'd already spent. To keep my nervous hands busy, I collaged all of the tiny sticky notes I'd brought with me into a colorful seascape on top of my desk, a vivid orange ship floating on electric blue waters, and beneath it all, a colossal pink squid reaching its tentacles upward toward the unsuspecting ship. I was tearing a bit of notebook paper into a circle to make the squid's right eye when I felt someone watching me. I looked up. Sergio, my Leos... My liaison at the library stood in the doorway of the study room, hands clasped behind his back. I pulled out my earbuds and set down the paper. Excuse me, he said. I didn't mean to interrupt. I couldn't tell if he was being sarcastic or extra considerate. No problem, I said. 
I placed Sergio somewhere in his 50s, broad and slightly paunchy, with long, graying hair that he kept back in a neat ponytail. His accompanying beard was carefully trimmed, and overall he cultivated a distinguished countercultural air, a diplomat from the underground. That morning, he wore faded jeans, a raw sexus t-shirt, and a gray linen blazer. And your research, he said. It's going well? Again, I couldn't tell if he was being sincere or not. This is a pre-writing exercise that I do, I said, nodding at the sticky note collage. It helps me. I'm happy to hear it, said Sergio. He slipped his hands into his pockets and stepped into the study room. Lips pursed, he gave the paper squid on top of my desk a long, hard look. Today I'm researching the architecture of Sao Paulo, I say. I said. Interesting stuff. The coffee boom era, said Sergio, noticing the cover of the book I'd set aside. Yes, I said, but had nothing to add. I knew that Wayne Fortescue had been in contact with Sergio to coordinate my time as, at the library, but I wasn't sure in what capacity Sergio currently operated. Was he liaising solely between me and the library, or between me and the library and, the, and Fortescue? Was he sending the CAC updates on what books and articles I consulted and how I used my time? I wasn't sure how careful I needed to be around him, so I opted for full discretion. Yes, I repeated. The work is going very well. Sergio, Sergio said, I found a story you wrote. This caught me off guard. Really? I said. Yes, he said, a tension in his voice that I couldn't read, about a woman's visit to an art museum. That's the one, I said. A small but respectable journal had run the story when I was a junior at, B8, at BYU. It was my only publication to date, a cosmic fluke, apparently. I'd written reams of short stories since then and gotten back nothing but rejections. I had hoped a novel might turn the tide, but that obviously wasn't going to happen. Sergio pointed to my backpack slouched on the floor. Please pick that up and come with me, he said. Leave the books for now. I grabbed my bag and followed Sergio out the door. I had no idea what he was up to, but it seemed serious. We walked past the restrooms, past some more glass study rooms, past a long bank of multicolored reference books. Sergio opened a door marked Authorized Personnel Only, and we descended a flight of stairs, passed through another door, and descended another, even narrower staircase. The deeper we went, the more nervous I got. Finally, the stairs opened onto a long hallway lined with dented metal doors. Sergio reached into his pocket and fumbled out a cluttered ring of keys. As we made our way down the hall, he fumbled through the keys until we came to a door, identical to the rest except for a plaque at eye level that read Sergio Antunes. Antunes? Antunes. I'm gonna guess that. Sub-librarian. Sergio unlocked the door, opened it, and gestured for me to enter. It was a tiny broom closet of an office, which contained in total three items, a metal folding chair, an attached desk chair combo of the type used in public high schools, and a two-drawer filing cabinet. Even with so little furniture, there was barely enough room inside for the two of us. Please, said Sergio, have a seat. I sat down on the folding chair. Sergio left the door, which opened into the hallway, slightly ajar, and sat down at the desk. I wiped my sweating palms on the sides of my of my pants. You're a missionary? He said. I used to be, I said. A few years ago, 
Now I'm trying to write a novel about it. Cashing in on your experience, he said. Well, I said. I shifted in my chair. Sergio folded his hands on the desk in front of him. So who do you read? He said. I mean, who are your favorites? <clears throat> I told him James Joyce, Flannery O'Connor, Sherwood Anderson. I wondered where he was going with this. Any science fiction? He said. Not really, I said. A little Bradbury, I guess. But you do know Salgado Mackenzie, correct? He said. Who? I said. Salgado Mackenzie, he said. Edward Salgado Mackenzie. No, I said. I've never heard of him. Sergio slapped his palm against the surface of his desk with, with such force that the sound echoed off the bare walls of the room and into the hallway. You must have, he said. I shook my head. This was getting intense. Are you sure? He said. I'm pretty sure, I said. I was positive you had read him, he said, a note of, accus of accusation in his voice. I'm sorry, I said. Sergio leaned, with his, leaned his elbows on the desk and ran his hands through his hair with a sigh. Your art museum story, he said, his voice softer now, deflated. What was it called? The Gallery Within? Yeah. Sergio nodded. That story reminded me of one of Salgado Mackenzie's, Without Anger or Fondness, it's called. The premise is, there's a museum on Mars that displays great works of art that were salvaged from Earth before Earth was essentially destroyed by nuclear war. One day, a woman named Dolores da, da Gama visits the museum. Dolores was born on Earth, but her family fled to Mars just before everything went haywire. Dolores is at the museum then, looking at the art on display, and at first she's enjoying herself, but then she starts to feel like something's off. She's not sure why, but something about these paintings makes her very uncomfortable. Finally, she gets to Le Déjeuner's Lip, you know, Monet's picture painting, picnic painting, and figures out what's wrong. Instead of lounging in a verdant, I don't know why I did French, verdant, 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 uh, French Grove, the picnickers have reclined in the middle of a severe red rock Martian landscape. Everything else is just as it should be. The man in the round black hat, the inexplicably nude woman, the fruit spilling artfully from the basket, but they are unmistakably picnicking on Mars. More confounding still, the style of the landscape is completely appropriate. If Monet had ever painted the surface of Mars, this is exactly what it would have looked like, which somehow it's upsets Dolores even more. Now she goes back through the room she's already visited, and sure enough, each painting is subtly but unmistakably set on Mars. Raphael's The Alba Madonna, Hopper's Cape Cod Evening, El Greco's Nikon, eh. Botticelli's Primavera, Gainsborough's The Painter's Daughters Chasing a Butterfly, and on and on, all of them featuring red rock landscapes painted in the unmistakable styles of the original artist. With each altered painting she sees, Dolores grows angrier and angrier. Who would perpetrate such an elaborate and senseless prank in a room with Delacroix girls seated in a cemetery 
Altered like the rest, she grabs the security guard by the arm and asks what happened to all the original paintings. The security guard has no idea what she's talking about, so Dolores demands to speak with the museum's curator. The guard obliges, leading her to the main offices, where the curator listens politely to the woman's concerns and then patiently explains that the paintings have not been altered since being brought from Earth. Dolores argues with the curator, tries to prove somehow that these are not the original paintings, but she can't. She has no photographs or prints of the original paintings, so it's ultimately her word against the curator's. Eventually, Dolores gives up. In the next scene, she's standing again in front of Le Détournée-Saint-Lope, and at first she's still angry, but the longer she looks at the painting, the more the Martian version resonates with her. She can still remember the non-Mars version, but this new red rock setting seems so right somehow. It just fits, and Dolores finds it harder and harder to imagine the painting looking any other way. On her way out of the museum, she stops by the gift shop and buys a framed print of the painting, the Mars version, and goes home feeling oddly vindicated. So there you go. Obviously, there are some key differences from your story, but there were enough similarities, even some turns of phrase, that I thought your story had to be an homage to Salgado Mackenzie. There actually was a strong similarity there. My story is about a woman who insists that a painting by her late husband has been altered by the museum that displays it, although she can't pinpoint how exactly. But I'd never heard of the of Edward. Edward Salgado Mackenzie, or read his Martian Art Museum story. No, I said. I'm sorry. I don't know that story. Another sigh from Sergio. I felt bad disappointing him. I said, so... What's... So this... What's his name again? Edward Salgado Mackenzie. Right, I said. This Salgado Mackenzie. Is he a Brazilian writer? That's a good question, he said, brightening a little. Open up the top drawer of that filing cabinet, would you? I had to scoot my chair nearly out the door, and when I opened the drawer, I found a hypochondriac arsenal, bluster packs of tablets tablets for diarrhea, allergies, motion sickness, bottles of brightly colored syrups for coughs, sore throats, insomnia, the flu, bottles of pills for migraines, dizziness, fatigue. The antacid tablets, said Sergio. The yellow lid. I found the bottle and handed it to him. With an expert flip of his thumb, he opened the snap-top lid and shook five of the chalky tablets into his palm. He tossed them back and and preferred the open bottle in my direction. No thanks, I said. I'm fine. Nodding, he shut the lid and tossed the bottle back into the drawer with a clatter. You can shut that now, he said when he finished che- when he had finished chewing. A fine white powder dust- dusted his lips. I shut the drawer. Edward Salgado Mackenzie, Sergio said and then paused, wincing. I'm sorry, he put a hand to his chest. Disappointment gives me heartburn. Well, damn! <laughs> he took a breath. So, began Sergio. Edward Salgado Mackenzie. As you probably guessed, he's my favorite writer. His stories, most of them anyway, feature Captain Irina Sertorian, commander of a spaceship that sets up, that gets separated from its fleet at the, at the end of a long, drawn-out inter, intergalactic war. 
Her ship doesn't have the power to make it back home on its own, so she and her crew go from planet to planet in an obscure and dangerous system at the edge of the civilized ga galaxy. Kind of a frontier si situation. And that's pretty much it. Each story is a different adventure on a different planet. As far as science fiction premises go, premises go, it's pretty conventional. People at least... People, at least the ones who've heard of him, dismiss Salgado Mackenzie for that reason. They say his work is derivative and flat, but they're missing the point. They're not seeing what he does with that premise. I'm not sure how to explain it to you. Sergio paused. I was 15 years old, he continued, when I first came across him in this magazine, Contos Fantásticos. I'd never heard of Salgado Mackenzie before, but back then, when I read a magazine, I read it cover to cover. So this story by Salgado Mackenzie, it's called If You Seek a Pleasant P Peninsula, and it's about a planet where all of the living people live on one side, the light side, but then once they die, they go to the dark side of the planet, where they populate whole cities. They're not ghosts. They have substance but they're dead. In fact, they have an entire dead society that mirrors the living one on the light side of the planet. Businesses, dance clubs, churches, and how the story starts is Captain Irina Sertorian and her crew land on the dead side of the planet, and it baffles all of the residents, because Irina Sertorian and her crew are all alive and no living creature has ever been to the dark side of the planet. Well, everyone starts asking questions, both the planet's residents and Sertorian's crew. And this leads to a big tribunal that culminates with a really eerie examination by a dead person doctor who uses a kind of stethoscope with a long needle instead of a drum to listen to the soul, basically, of each member of the crew. I loved the story, and of course I had to get my hands on everything else this Salgado Mackenzie had written, but that's where I ran into trouble. I've riffled... I riffled through the back issues of my magazines, but came up empty. I subscribed to all the big ones, and some smaller ones, too. FC, Argonato, O, Plana o Planeta, Contos Astron Astronomicos, Contos Intergalacticos, Contos de Astronauta. The works. Anthologies, too. Stuff in translation by Asimov, Leguan, Clark, as well as Brazilian writers, Fausto Cuna. Jerónimo Montero, André Carnero, Dina Silvera de Queiroz, and some others. My father owned a newspaper, the Polistano, owned a newspaper, the Polistano, so we were pretty comfortable and I had to, and I had access to whatever reading material I wanted. Even so, I couldn't find anything else by Salgado Mackenzie in my collection. So what I did was interrogated the owner of every bookshop in a 20-block radius. I was a persistent little teenager, but nobody had heard of the guy. I kept looking, though, unwilling to give up that easily. Sergio's enthusiasm had an almost physical quality by this point, a tendril of intensity reaching across the room to hold me in its grasp. Finally, continued Sergio, in a three-year-old copy of a fifth-rate magazine called Contos Science Fiction, that I bought from a grimy used magazine stand at the train station, I found another one of his stories. In this one, Captain Irina Sertorian lands on yet another undiscovered planet, in this case one that seemed completely deserted. They poke around a little and are just about to leave, but then crew members start disappearing, just vanishing, and I tell you the rest, but I wouldn't want to spoil it.
It's great. I enjoyed the second story as much as I had the first. Maybe even more. Unfortunately, finding a story didn't get any easier from there. Over the course of five years, I only managed to track down another three. I loved them, though, as much as the first two I'd read, perhaps even more so because of the effort I'd expended in obtaining them. Meanwhile, I'd also become interested in journalism and politics, and around the time I turned 21, I got a job as a reporter for Otra Trabalador. A minor left his paper whose purpose in life was to criticize my father's right-leaning Polistano. I liked to pretend that nobody on the staff knew my true identity. I worked under a pen name, and that I had been hired be based solely on the merits of the handful of mediocre pieces of mine that had appeared in small newspapers around the city. I'd later find out that the editor knew exactly who I was and had hoped I might be a useful source of inside information about the Palestano. Regrettably, for both me and the editor, I had never paid much attention to my father's mealtime shop talk, and once he heard I was working for the Trabalador, he kept quiet about work whenever I was around. Anyway, one day I was hanging around the offices of the Trabalador, bending a colleague's ear about the greatness of Salgado Mackenzie, when my colleague, fed up, stopped me and said that if I love Salgado Mackenzie so much, I should find him and tell him how I feel about his work, just to get it out of my system. Why this idea had never occurred to me, I'm not sure. I'd forgotten, I suppose, that we occupied the same plane of existence, Salgado Mackenzie having developed such totemic significance for me. But in all likelihood, we actually lived in the same country, possibly even the same city. Who knows if I had already passed him in the street or stood next to him on a bus or sat behind him in a movie? The prospect left me dumbstruck. Over the next few weeks, I managed to speak with every editor who had ever worked with Salgado Mackenzie's fiction. Two of them had no idea who I was talking about. They had to look him up to verify that they had, in fact, published his work. Of the three editors who did remember his fiction, none had met him in person. His work had made an impression, though, and each of them offered up a different portrait, or, I suppose, theory, of the man, pieced together from whatever factual fragments they had managed to glean. All three agreed that he had been born, or at least raised, in the United States, and that his mother was Brazilian, her, his father North American, or possibly Scottish. The family relocated to Brazil when Salgado Mackenzie was in his mid to late teens, and so Portuguese was not his first language. Soon after moving, and here's where the details get even fuzzier, both parents died. A car crash, or a political hit, or a double suicide. Whatever the cause, young Edward, 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 eh, was left alone and spent his teenage years being passed around by distant relatives of his mother's. Or maybe he spent that time barely surviving on the streets. No one could say for sure. Beyond those few tidbits, the editors I talked to agreed on very little. One editor claimed that Salgana Mackenzie had written the stories decades and decades ago in English and had in the meantime died or moved back to the States. A friend or relative had discovered the manuscripts and was currently translating them into Portuguese, submitting them to various magazines as they were finished. This would explain the choppy Anglo-sentence structure of the prose, as well as the story's apparent un unawareness of any scientific de developments post-dating the early 50s. The second editor believed that Salgado Mackenzie was actually a woman. This theory was based 
primarily, from what I could tell, on the fact that so many of his stories featured a female protagonist. This editor argued that the actual author felt a need to hide her identity and so adopted a male pseudonym. I asked why she would need to hide her identity, and the editor said she might be a government official, or maybe she was a serious artist dabbling in genre fiction. She might even have been the North American poet and noted lucifile Elizabeth Bishop, disguising herself with the story's clumsy prose. It was not so far-fetched, really. Many respectable writers made secret portraits into the sordid world of genre fiction. I told the editor I was not so sure. The third editor I talked to believed that Edward Sergato Mackenzie was just a man named Edward, Edward Sergato Mackenzie, currently alive. Sorry, where the fuck did I end up? Currently alive and writing odd stories in a language that was not his own. He was in all likelihood a very dull person, and if I ever found him, I would only be disappointed. This editor also gave me Salgado Mackenzie's mailing address, a post office box, along with an assurance that I could try writing, but I'd never heard back from him. I tried writing anyway, posting a brief but heartfelt letter in what I explained what in which I explained what his stories meant to me and asked if he would be open to speaking with me. Perhaps I could profile him in the newspaper, or, if he shunned publicity, we could meet instead for a friendly cup of coffee. I waited for weeks and then months, but as the editor had predicted, I received no response. I was tempted at that time to take advantage of some government contacts I had established through my jobs. I knew that I could get their hands on the personal information of the owner of that post office box, but in the end, I decided to respect Salgado Mackenzie's silence. Although his work remained a lodestar for me, I would leave the man in peace. We'll jump forward about 15 years, then. I was at, science fi at a science fiction convention here in the city. No, I should be more specific. I was three or four degrees removed from this convention. What I mean is, I had attended the convention during the day, and that evening I had gone to a party at a friend's house, a fellow SV enthusiast. SF? Where did I get V from? SF enthusiast. The evening had worn on, and from the party I had broken... And from that party, I had broken off with a few people to go to a different party nearby. I had broken off from that party, and the one after that, and that's how, a little after midnight, I found myself in a cramped hotel room with a dozen or so fellow conventioneers that I'd never met before in my life. A few of us stood in the bathroom debating the merits of various first contact novels, but as the conversation grew heated and petty, I excused myself and made my way to the main room stepping carefully over the lounging bodies of my fellow partygoers. The room reeked of cigarettes and sweat, but in a nice, intimate way. A relaxed, easy gathering, all in all. Men and women sitting cross-legged on the two full beds or sprawling out on the red and blue patterned carpet, drinking and talking. In fact, everyone was sitting or reclining except for one slouchy, middle-aged man who stood alone in the far corner of the room, staring at an empty patch of carpet in front of him. He wore slacks, a threadbare blazer, and an unfashionably thick tie. The top button of his shirt still done up. The top button of his shirt still done up. He had a head like an upside-down egg and a sad, apologetic face. I crossed the room toward the man, if for no other reason than to occupy the empty space of carpet in front of him. There was nowhere else to sit or stand. Sergio Antun, Antunes, I said, holding out my hand. He shook it without looking me in the eyes. Edward Silgado Mackenzie, he said. 
With the hum of a dozen conversations happening around me, I wasn't sure I heard him right. I leaned in closer. Excuse me? I said. The man's already apologetic face assumed an even more remorseful expression as he opened his mouth to reply. I'm sorry. I know it's a mouthful. He said in a thick Anglo accent, his eyes still fixed on the carpet. My name's Edward Salgado Mackenzie. I couldn't believe it. I felt a rush of an adrenaline, and the atmosphere in the room took on a vivid, dreamlike quality. Salgado Mackenzie, the writer? The Irina Sertorian stories? That's right, he said, looking up with surprise. This is wonderful, I said. Mr. Salgado Mackenzie, sir, I'm a great admirer of your work. He looked me in the eye, and for a moment, less than a moment, there was an expression of guarded pleasure, an expression that stretched his lips and cheeks into positions they seemed deeply unaccustomed to. He opened his mouth to reply, but then his eyes took in my face and something changed. His pale lips curled, his eyebrows clenched. What? You! He exploded and hit me in the chest, an awkward mix of a punch and a shove. I stepped back to keep my balance and knocked over the drink of the woman sitting on the floor behind me. She stood up. A ripple moved through the room. Then everyone's eyes were on me and the man in the corner. What? Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm confused. Uh, I lost my place. How dare you, said the man, his finger pointed at my chest. How dare you belittle me like that? The crowd in the room went completely silent. You must have misunderstood me, I said. I'm a, I'm truly a great admirer of your work. I can't even begin to convey, convey what it's meant to. No, he said, fury in his eyes. I haven't forgotten how you treated me, and I refuse to allow it again. I'm sorry, I said, but I think this is all a misunderstanding. You and I have never met before. He winced at this. You'll pretend you don't know me, he said. Hoping to clear this up as quickly as possible, I said, truly, I don't recall, or have you forgotten, he said, the fury now tinged with something much sadder. Have you really forgotten? I lifted a placating hand. I said, I can assure you we've never met before tonight. Unbelievable, he said. We were all a little tipsy by this point in the evening, but there was something frighteningly sober about this man, a clarity in his thin voice and his pale eyes. He had the attention of the entire room. He said, you lived for several years in a building on the corner of Imperiador and Machado, apartment number 207. Am I wrong? He was not. That was my first apartment. I lived there when I was first starting out as a freelancer, up through my time with the Trabalador. Tra my tie, my hope that this was a complete, this was a complete misunderstanding shriveled inside me. I still didn't recognize this man, but he knew where I'd lived. That was my apartment, I said. I know, he said. We were neighbors. I lived in 209. He waited for me to process this, but still I didn't recognize him. I'm sorry, I said. He said, so you still claim we've never met? All I'm saying, I said, is that your face doesn't ring a bell. It figures, he said, throwing up his hands. 
He took a breath, composing himself, and turned to face the room full of people, who watched us intently. When he began to speak again, it was to them, as he couldn't bear to address me directly. This man, he said, his voice soft now, his audience straining to hear, this man and I were neighbors for three years. We lived right next to each other, and although we were not friends by any means, we were friendly. I don't believe we were ever formally introduced, but we never, but we had a nodding acquaintanceship and exchanged pleasantries whenever we passed each other on the stairs or ran into each other at the mailbox. During one of these exchanges, we both we discovered that both of us write wrote professionally. He was a journalist, and I earned my living translating repair manuals for industrial equipment. Once we found that common ground, we'd always talk about books when we saw each other. Not great in-depth conversations, but updates on what each of us was reading. I was on a Flaubert kick in, one, in those days, and if I recall, Sergio was reading a lot of Herman Hess. There was the slightest edge of competition to our book updates, or if not competition, competition then a desire to impress, at least on my part, which is why I men might mention that the latest blog Vargas Llosa novel, novel I'd read, but at the latest, but not the latest, Le Guin. Aside from books, we might complain about the building superintendent, a belligerent southerner rumored to be the son of a Nazi in hiding, or commiserate over the building's unreliable plumbing. Standard neighbor small, small talk. Hang on, getting a little thirsty. There I am. Salgano Mackenzie paused and wiped at his pale lips. Personally, I could remember the, pale, the bad plumbing, the superintendent with alleged Nazi ties, the building itself, but this guy's face was still completely unfamiliar to me, and so was our supposed book talk. As I said, Salgano Mackenzie continued, he and I were not friends. I recognized that. But when we greeted each other, I thought I could detect a genuine warmth in his smile, a collegiality in his voice. We also shared a schedule in common, or rather, a lack of schedule. Unlike others on our floor, the two of us kept regular hours. I translated from home, and so I worked when I felt like working and slept when I felt like sleeping. I often went for late-night walks and would return to see my neighbor here just getting in, or sometimes leaving. I still remember one chilly June midnight in particular. I'd finished a translation and had no interest in sleeping. I decided, for starters, to check my mail. As I passed apartment 207, I saw light peeking through the crack in, at the bottom of the door and heard cupboards being opened and shut. Feeling that night owl's sense of camaraderie, I saluted the closed door and continued on to the stairs. When I got to my mailbox, my mood only improved. I found a letter inside informing me that I had won a short story contest put on by a magazine in Portugal. It was not a great prize, but it was a good prize, and what's more, it was a contest I had forgotten I'd entered. I tucked the notice into my shirt pocket and, and rang quietly up the stairs. I walked down the hallway, past the door to my neighbor's still-lit apartment. I paused. I walked back several steps and, on a whim, knocked lightly on my neighbor's door. He answered almost immediately, pulling the door open, still dressed for work. Behind him, I could see an elaborate game of solitaire laid out on the battered kitchen table. Jaunty music played quietly in the background. Chico Bar Barque, maybe, or Que Tan Veloso, 
oh my god, I just kicked the table with a candle on it, but nothing bad happened, we're fine. My neighbor asked me what he could do for me. I told him I had good news. Maybe worth celebrating. And would he like to join me for a drink or maybe a bite to eat? He didn't respond right away. He waited for what must have been only a few seconds, but it felt to me like minutes, hours even, as I watched him consider my friendly proposal. I hadn't realized before I spoke how how vulnerable I would feel extending this invitation. I'd suffered some personal losses recently and was, in ways that I understand now, but didn't at the time, aching for a human connection. Salgada Mackenzie paused at this point, lost in his own recollections. When he assumed his sto- resumed his story, he spoke directly to me. You didn't even answer, he said. Not a word. You just looked at me like I was nothing, and you shut that dark wooden door in my face. We never spoke again after that, until this evening. His story over, Salgada Mackenzie considered me through heavy-lidded eyes, and then shrugged back into the same cringing posture I had found him in, his gaze fixed on the carpet. Naturally, I was horrified. I consider myself a basically kind person, and to treat someone that way would go against everything I believe in. My first impulse was to apologize, but the problem was I had absolutely no memory of the incident, or of ever meeting Salgado Mackenzie. His face remained stubbornly unfamiliar. Part of me still hoped this was a terrible mistake, but I had no but I knew that voicing that possibility would only insult the man further. I had no idea what to say, and so I stood there, dumbstruck. After a moment, Edouard Salgado Mackenzie gave a snort of disgust, shoved past me, and left the party. Sergio shook his head. The tiny office had grown hot and stale over the course of his story. He leaned over and pushed the door, already slightly ajar, all the way open, and a soft rush of slightly cool air drifted in, drifted in. Sergio brushed at something on the back of his hand and looked up and looked back at me. It's a terrible feeling being reviled by a lifelong idol, he said. It's even worse to consider that I might have deserved it. He gave his beard a melancholy scratch. More vexing still, though, is the question of why I don't remember the encounter encounter, or even the man's face. How could I forget someone that I'm supposed to have spoken with frequently? He shook his head. One possibility is I was so wrapped up in myself at the time that the man next door never truly registered on my consciousness. Sad as that may be, it's very possible. I was young and fascinated by my own potential, and that can blind you to so much. I also, as a journalist, talk to a lot of people over the course of any given day, and that can blur conversations together, even make them disappear. So I can see how I might not have remembered him. But still, I can't imagine what would impel me to slam the door in the face of someone who just made a simple, such a simple, friendly gesture. Sergio was looking increasingly despondent. I decided to throw in my two cents. Maybe he made the whole thing up, I said. There's at least one inconsistency in his story. The mail? said Sergio. Right. I said, if Salgado Mackenzie had all his editorial mail sent to a post office box, then why was he getting an award notification at home? Exactly, said Sergio. I've thought a lot about that, but it doesn't mean he was lying. It could be a minor misremembered detail, or maybe he sometimes submitted stories via his home address. 
really, it's a small enough inconsistency that, if I'm being honest with myself, I have to admit doesn't invalidate his story. He sighed heavily and stared into an empty corner of the office. I'm sorry, I said. Sergio nodded, eyes still distant. He said, I've tried to track him down since then, but with no luck. So Legato McKenzie put out a few more short stories during that er during the early 90s, and then nothing. Radio silence. Throughout Sergio's story, I'd temporarily forgotten my own troubles, but as he wrapped up his account, thoughts of my failed novel came flooding back, and felt claustrophobic and queasy, suddenly desperate to get out of the tiny office. I should probably go, I said. Sergio scooted his desk chair combo back, legs screeching against the floor. Why don't you open that bottom drawer, he said, pointing to the filing cabinet. I swiveled around, knocking my shoulder against the front edge of Sergio's desk, and opened the drawer. Instead of pharmaceuticals, I found hanging files, binders, and notebooks. That manila folder in front, said Sergio. Hand it to me, would you? I did, and while he leafed through its contents, I stood up and moved closer to the door, which only entailed taking a half step to my right. If I moved any further, farther, I'd be out in the hallway. Here it is, said Sergio. He pulled a staple packet from the folder and held it out to me. It's a story about Salgado Mackenzie, he said. Take it. Read it. Okay, I'm gonna take a break. Back from my break. Chapter 2 I didn't read the story. Instead, I went back to my hotel and slept for 11 hours. Some people, when they're in trouble, can't sleep. Their problems rattle around their skulls like rocks in a polishing tumbler, and the noise keeps them up for hours. For me, it's the opposite. When I'm in a tight spot, it's like my brain overloads and there's nothing to do but shut down. Sometimes I don't even dream. I just lose consciousness for as long as my body can manage to stay asleep. It's great, until I wake up the next morning and my troubles return, reinvigorated by their own night's rest. Sure enough, that's exactly what happened when I came to at 6 a.m. in my hotel room, still fully dressed in the clothes I'd been wearing the day before. I had managed to get my shoes off, so that was something. I sat up in my be I sat up in bed, my clothes warm and wrinkled. The worst part was I had jeans on, and the only thing worse than sleeping in jeans is wearing them swimming. I felt terrible. Uh this whole trip, Fortescue, this whole trip, Fortescue had been keeping me on a very short leash. Each morning, I was required to email him an update on the on the research I'd done the day before, as well as the research I planned to complete that day. My emails were vague yet positive, but I'd grown certain that Fortescue could smell the failure through my carefully worded missives and and, like a bored tiger, was merely toying with me until he could administer the sweet, the swift, killing blow to my tender neck. I had no idea what I'd tell him in today's email, but I had to send it soon or I would miss his arbitrarily imposed deadline and incur whatever dire consequences lay in store. I got out of bed, showered, and walked the half mile to the Biblioteca Anita Garibaldi as quickly as I could. Sitting down at the sleek, mid-century modern work table in the library's computer lab, I set to work on my email. I updated Fortescue on the previous day's research and then floated a hypothetical past him. Say I couldn't write this novel. What happens then? 
I sent off the email, looking, looked at a couple of news sites, and read an article from Spin, or maybe it was Ro Rolling Stone, arguing that Power Pop's true golden age ran from 1990 to 1997, and that the era's and the genre's greatest album, Matthew Sweet's Girlfriend, stands as a monumental testament to, to that fact. I was on board with the 90s. 90s as golden age part of the argument, and I do like Girlfriend, but I certainly wouldn't rank it as the greatest power pop album of all time, or even of the 90s. My top five 90s power pop al albums, one, Con Contiki by Cotton. Dang it, I lost my spot. I accidentally closed the book. Um, give me a sec. There I am. Um, got to the page. Mm -hmm. There I am. One, Contiki by Cotton Matter. Mather. Matter? Matter. Two, Fountains of Wames eponymous debut album. Three, Frosting on the Beater by The Posies. Four, Girlfriend by Matthew Sweet. Five, Regretfully Yours by Super Drag. I closed the article and was about to log off when I saw a new message in my inbox from Fortescue. His speed, his speed alarmed me, and with good reason. His email started out positive. All rah rah, half time, go fight, win, speak. He knew I could do it, blah blah blah. In the second paragraph, though, he answered my question. Failure to fulfill the terms of our contract would force the coalition of aggrieved Christians to repossess the funds they'd awarded me, pursuing legal action if necessary. Interest would be charged. I read through the email a second time, and then a third. On the one hand, it was a relief to know exactly where I stood. On the other hand, and more important, I owed a shady religious organization $7,000 plus interest. I don't know if that sounds like a lot of money to you, but at the time, it was enough to demolish me. I was in bad trouble. I know you must think I was overlooking the most obvious solution to my problem. Why not just write the novel? The truth is, I'd already been trying to for months by that point, since before I'd applied for the grant even. I'd always believed that writer's block was a luxury available only to established writers and smarmy, well-funded MFA students. Who else could afford to spend their time not writing, not moving forward on their next project? And I guess my problem wasn't writer's block exactly. I was writing plenty, 2,000 words a day sometimes, but all of it was terrible. I would draft the novel's first chapter, spend weeks revising it, and then realize I hated it down to its bones and no amount of revision could save it. A few times I tried moving forward anyway, writing a second and a third chapter, but every time I did, I despised each successive chapter even more than the one before it. I don't mean to this to sound ar arrogant, but the problem wasn't a lack of talent on my part. Over the previous few years, I'd developed a hard-won technical proficiency, but unfortunately, the most even the most elegant sentence in the world couldn't mask the lack of heart in those failed drafts. You could almost hear rats' feet scurrying through the dry cellar that lay beneath every word I wrote. I had hoped that my visit to Sao Paulo would, would imbue me with some grand sense of purpose. Instead, it had forced me to admit that this project, as I had imagined it, a grandiose portrait of the artist as a young missionary, was never going to happen. 
I don't want to get too much deeper into the details of why the novel didn't work out. That's not what this story is about. The short answer, though, is that I put too much pressure on the project. I was still stinging from all the grad school rejections. My financial situation was grim. I lacked... What the fuck was that? That just sounded like a loud-ass rat outside my house. What the hell? Was that a child making that noise? Was that was that a child? Was that a bird? I don't know. I, I'll never know. Maybe it was a squirrel. And my culinary teacher can come get it for me. <laughs> no one else will get that joke. So I'm going to take a pause to explain the backstory of that. Because I can't recall if I've talked about this or not. So I will say, because we just refer to our chefs by, like, initials. So I think I've clarified this. Chef A hates squirrels. He, if a squirrel happens to jump into the road in front of his car, he'll, like, veer his car to try and run over the squirrel. His life's mission is to destroy all squirrels on Earth. I don't know why. It's a personal thing. Is there a backstory? I should ask him this. Is there a tragic backstory to the squirrels being enemies of you? Is that, like, did they hurt you in some way? Because I think he's talked about, like, they chewed through your house and then you have to pay a bunch of money and you didn't even do the damage. It was the squirrel's fault. Maybe that happened to him. Maybe a squirrel, like, destroyed his house. Like, a part of his house, and he had to pay a huge sum of money. And now, like the mafia, he wants that money back. So, <laughs> he's gonna kill your whole family. Did I just set a hit against myself from the goddamned mafia? Mafia, please don't hurt me. You probably don't hear this podcast, but if someone... But if one of your, one of your mafia people is, like, randomly browsing on Spotify or Amazon Music one day and comes across this, and it's just, like, a boss, some random kid on the internet is calling us little names and shit, and the mafia is just like, well, damn, we can't have anyone talking bad about our family, let's go. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please don't hurt me. I am but an innocent child. But an innocent child. <laughs> anyway. So, Chef A, Chef A is making it his life mission to destroy all the squirrels. So that's why I said, huh, maybe my culinary teacher can get the squirrel for me if it was a squirrel. Because it would make his day. It would make his day, honestly. He'd be like a squirrel, you say? And I can kill it on my way, man. <laughs> anyway, back to the book. So short answer, though, is that I put too much pressure on the project. I was still stinging from all the grad school rejections. My financial situation was grim. I lacked conviction, artistic and otherwise, and so this novel needed to rescue me. It needed to radiate indisputable genius, and it needed to sell a million copies. Instead, not surprisingly, it collapsed in on itself. 
I read through Wayne Fortescue's email again, hoping that this time I'd notice a smiley face or a JK at the end of his paragraph of threats. No such luck. My fear was starting to go septic, and by the time I logged off the computer, I reeked with fury at stupid Wayne Fortescue and his stupid coalition of stupid aggrieved Christians. But most of all, at stupid me for signing the stupid contract to write a stupid novel that I now hated the thought of. I needed to clear my head. I slugged my backpack over my shoulder and headed for the nearest exit. I was almost to the door when Sergio stepped out from behind the behind a bookcase, head buried in a newspaper. I had to skip to the side to keep from bumping into him. Daniel, he said, so sorry. Today's t-shirt, partially obscured beneath his button blazer, featured Iron Maiden, a band more beloved in Brazil than maybe any place else in the in in the world. It's fine, I said. A dangerous habit, he said, lifting up the newspaper. Walking, walking while reading. Really, I said. Don't worry about it. I took a step toward the door. I'm glad I caught you, though, he said, tucking the newspaper under his arm. What did you think of the story? The truth was, I'd completely forgotten about it. Right, I said. The Salgado Mackenzie. The very one, he said. I hadn't read it, but a lie seemed like the quickest way out the door. Yeah. I said, it was pretty good. Pretty good? Said Sergio. Yeah, I said. Not bad. Sergio arched an eyebrow at this. I went on. And also, I just want to thank you for all your help with the research and everything. I may not be coming back to the library before I fly home, because I'm going to be doing some on-the-ground type stuff for the next few days. You know, getting reacquainted with the city and whatnot. So, thanks. Sergio tapped his folded newspaper against his chin while he considered this. Sphinx-like. It was my pleasure, he said finally. Good luck to you. Before I could get entangled further, I told Sergio that I had to run and then stepped out the door into the eucalyptus and exhaust-scented air of the city. I walked, head down, earbuds plugged in, to the nearest metro station, swiped my 10-day pass, and boarded the first train that pulled up to the platform. I must have looked as angry as I felt, because the other passengers kept their distance, eyeing me warily, a toxic blonde ogre stinking of huffy failure. As I watched the city pass by through the window, towering skyscrapers, buttling, bustling church-side process, clusters of plywood shanties, I remembered the story that Sergio had, had given me. I felt bad about lying to him. He'd been nothing but generous to me, and the story obviously meant a lot to him. I should just read it. I found the pages, all crumpled, at the bottom of my backpack. I sat down in an open seat, smoothed out the creased paper, and started to read. Chapter 3 The story begins with Captain Irina Sertorian and her, and her crew dangerously low on provisions, making an energy supply stop on an unknown planet. They touch down in an abandoned ro abandoned rocket port near a small, picturesque village. The way Salgado Mackenzie describes it, the village sounds like a painting by Norman Rockwell. Broad, tree-lined streets, white picket fences, front porch rocking chairs, the works. And next to the village is a beautiful blue lake. 
As Sertorian and her crew be- cautiously approach the village, they're met by a small welcoming party. All smiles. A man in a three-piece suit introduces himself as the mayor, and a kindly old woman presents them with a strawberry rhubarb pie still warm from the oven. Sertorian thanks them for their hospitality and explains their predicament. She asks the mayor of the town if the ma- if the mayor... She asks the mayor if the town could spare some fuel and basic provisions. The mayor thinks about this for a second and then says his town would be happy to help, but it will take them a day or so to get the necessary supplies together. In the meantime, Sertorian and her crew will be the honored guests of the town. Sertorian thanks him profusely. The mayor bows and wishes them well, and then the kindly old woman, the one who gave them the pie, leads them to the boarding house. She leads them to the boarding house she runs and tells them to make themselves at home. That evening, they all enjoy a hearty, home-cooked dinner together, the best food they've eaten in ages. While they're polishing off the last of the roast bisonium, the mayor stops by and invites them all to go for a swim with him in the lake the next morning. The lake, he says, is the village's pride and joy. Sartorian th- says they'd be honored to swim in the lake, and the mayor wishes them a good evening. That night, the crew sleeps extremely well, and the next morning, after a hearty breakfast, they meet the mayor down at the edge of the lake. He's there with two smiling villagers, tall, broad-shouldered men, and they're dressed in this iridescent dive gear that's kind of incongruous. Inc- incongruous with the aesthetic of the story so far. They have extra gear for Sartorian and her crew, and while they all suit up, the mayor tells them about the lake. He says the lake is deeper than any other on their planet, and that to understand the people of this village, one must plumb the depths of the lake's dark waters. He says that to do so is an honor rarely extended to foreigners, that, as they they will soon understand, Sartorian and her crew have earned it. After that, there's a pretty tedious passage describing a short hike to a special cliff that they're all going to jump from. Not much happens, but the story goes on and goes on and on about the smooth, pristine surface of the lake and the fathomless depths below. Eventually, though, they make it to the cliff and everybody jumps into the water. That's where things really start to pick up. Down they all go, dive suits shimmering, and the deeper they sink. And the deeper they sink, the uneasier Sartorian and her crew become. They were on their guard already, this being an unfamiliar situation on an unknown planet. But now they really start to worry. They'd been anticipating something more recreational, but the mayor swims toward the bottom of the lake with this steely determination. This definitely isn't play or unstructured exploration. They're headed someplace specific. The other weird thing is that they're being pulled to the bottom of the lake somehow. Since they're actively swimming downward, nobody notices at it, notices it at first, but then Sartorian stops kicking for a second, and she doesn't slow down at all. She signals her crewmates and they see her, legs not moving, descending as quickly as the rest of them. This makes them all pretty nervous. One of them tries swimming upward, but it's no use. They all keep hurtling down toward the bottom of the lake. And that's the other thing. They keep expecting the lake bottom to appear at any second because they've been descending for a really long time. But below them, there's just more blue, darker and darker blue. And after a while, it's the same above them as well. No sunlight, just dark water. At this point, they realize the tech on this planet is much more advanced than it seemed at first. The dive suits are flimsy looking, but are helping their bodies withstand a crazy amount of pressure. Well, they keep falling, and Salgado Mackenzie keeps ratcheting up the suspense, doing a really good job of 
really nice job of it, too. And then finally, the shipmates see something. At first, it's just a blurry outline below them. But the further down they go, they see that it's an enormous building. All wavy metal and smooth contours. A really organic-looking structure, but shiny, too. As they get closer, it becomes clear that this structure is colossal, bigger even than the village they've just come from. As far as they can tell, the building has no windows or doors. It's all smooth, undulating metal. Apparently there are doors, though, because one opens up directly below the divers. It's more of a hatch, really, but the important thing is, the opening is pulling everyone toward it. It slowly sucks them all into the building, and then the hatch closes behind them. For a second, everything's dark, but then a light goes on and the water drains out of the room very, very quickly, because that's where they are, in a little room like they have in submarines. An airlock? And in just a few seconds, all of the water's gone. The mayor removes his diving mask, all smiles, and is about to make some speech, but before he can, Sarthonium pulls off her own mask and, and just lays into the mayor. He should have warned them about what was going to happen, and he had no right to drag them to the bottom of this lake without their permission. And what was he thinking? The mayor looks pretty contrite about this, as do two as do his two assistants. The mayor says he's mortified, just mortified. He thought it would be a nice surprise for everybody, but he can see see now how maybe it wasn't the best idea. Maybe not the type of surprise that everyone would enjoy. He says he hopes Arthurian and her crew will accept his most sincere apologies. This doesn't make Arthurian any less wary. wary. But she can see that she, the best tactical move is to pretend to accept the apology. So she does, but she still insists that they return to the village immediately. The mayor says it would be a shame not to take a tour of the Aquatorium, that's what this building's called, before they go. Sertorian declines this invitation. The mayor presses. It goes back and forth like that until the mayor sneers at Sertorian and her crew and tells them there's no point pretending anymore and presses a button on this special wrist console he has on his suit. Immediately, the dive suits of Sertorian and her crew go completely rigid. Basically, they're trapped. That's when the mayor introduces one of his assistants as the town judge. The judge gives a solemn little bow and then pulls this sheet of parchment from a pocket of his dive suit. He reads some official jargon about Sartorian and her crew committing grave crimes against the village of Lakeshore, and that now, for their own good and for the good of society, they're sentenced to life imprisonment in the Aquatorium. Then things get a little convoluted in the story, or maybe it just stretched my Portuguese skills too far. As I understand it, though, the mayor and his assistants, the judge and the other guy, are able to leave somehow, but Sartorian and her crew are stuck, and then their dive gear dissolves, or is taken away, and then they're inside the main hall of the Aquatorium, with thousands of other people. From here we learn that the Aquatorium is essentially a giant, un gigantic underwater depth debtor's prison. The people of the village have very strong feelings about self-sufficiency, whatever you want to call it, so anyone who can't pay off their debts is cast out of town and sent to live at the bottom of the lake. That's why Sarthonian and her crew are there, because basically they just showed up on the planet and asked for a handout. Actually, it's a little more complicated than that. Salgado Mackenzie spends eight pages explaining the philosophical underpinnings of the law, as well as its nuanced applications. In a nutshell, though, the Aquatorium is a debtor's prison. The story picks right, up, picks right back up as it follows Arthurian and her crew through their first week, few weeks in the Aquatorium. 
Navigating prison life requires every skill they've developed during the war and their subsequent years of imperiled wandering. The Aquatorium is surprisingly brutal for a debtor's prison, thanks in large part to the guards. They treat their charges with unrelenting cruelty, devising malevolent schemes to exploit existing rivalries between inmates. Rivalries that, thanks in part to these machinations, often erupt in violence. Within this turbulent environment, the shipmates are constantly having to prove themselves in bloody one-on-one fights that happen whenever the guards deliberately turn a blind eye. However, all of the shipmates, and Serthonian especially, successfully strike a balance between being tough but not malicious, and eventually they win the respect of their fellow prisoners. Their closest ally is a woman named Vera who has attempted 23 separate escapes from the Aquatorium. She is kept in solitary confinement most of the time because of this, but Sartorian's chief technician rigs up a way for Vera to communicate with them, and together they plan a daring prison break that will free every, everyone inside the Aquatorium. Their escape plan relies on a crucial piece of intelligence. On her most recent attempt, Vera had could have gotten away, but instead chose to break into the warden's office because of a rumor she'd heard from the Aquatorium's most senior inmate that just before, before he died. He told Vera, Vera that plans existed to safely a- evacuate the warden and all of the guards in case of emergency. He wasn't sure how, exactly, but if Vera could find out, she could use the plans to escape with a large number of her fellow inmates. Sure enough, when Vera broke into the warden's office and cracked his safe, she found protocols and technical directions for turning the Aquatorium's recreation hall into a massive, temporary submarine that would safely carry its occupants to the surface. Elated, Vera committed the plans to memory, returned them to the safe, and then, to cover her tracks, deliberately got caught by a guard on the opposite end of the aquatorium. With this submarine evacuation capability in mind, then, Vera and Captain Sarthonian plan the prison break. One part of their escape team will draw the guards away from the recreation hall. Another will disable the locking mechanism that keeps all the individual cells closed. Another will guide all their fellow inmates to the recreation hall. And another will make the necessary technical preparations for the recreation hall to become an escape submarine. The prison break itself goes better than any of them could have expected. In the cafeteria, Farrah Smart starts a small fire that temporarily distracts the guards, and from there everything runs like clockwork. The The prisoners are freed from their cells. The guards are drawn out of the recreation hall, which is then filled with all the prisoners. Sartorian's chief technician throws a lever. The wing seals itself off from the rest of the prison. An engine whirs to life and the vessel vessel rises. Inside the submarine, there's cheering, hugging, and tears. Everyone thrills at the prospect of seeing daylight again, of of being able to move about freely. For a few minutes, the recreation hall is one big happy party. When they reach the surface, though, the real trouble begins. Turns out the warden and the guards were able to send word to the mayor about the prison break via a secret emergency radio. So when Vera, Sertorian, and her crew, and all the other prisoners finally make it to the shore, the mayor and most of the village are waiting with heavy artillery. It gets pretty ugly. They just start mowing down the prisoners, no questions asked. Bodies pile up, mud in the water, the works. The prisoners do have some makeshift weapons of their own though, and there are so many of them that even the casualties, that even though the casualties are severe, they manage to overwhelm the forces of the mayor eventually. They take control of the heavy artillery and, in turn, the village. Things get more complicated from there as the former occupants of the Aquatorium disagree about how to proceed. Some of the people want to execute every last villager on the spot. Others, led by Vera, argue for 
for a more temperate approach, at least for the time being. A resettlement elsewhere on the planet, maybe, or even a peaceful reintegration. By this point, Sartorian and her crew have, have extricated themselves from the core of the action and are just waiting for the first opportunity to make a break for their ship. They've seen this kind of thing before, but that doesn't make it any easier to watch. As the debate among the former prisoners heats up, the shipmates slip away. There's this moment just as they're leaving when Sardorian catches Vera's eye, wanting to silently thank her for helping them to escape the Aquatorium. And Vera looks back at her from the midst of this debate that's only getting uglier, and just looks completely overwhelmed, kind of defeated. Sardorian turns away, and then she and her crew are off. They're boarding their spaceship when they hear renewed gunfire back in the village. Then they take off, and that's it. Well, everybody, I know I left off, like, at a pretty smooth spot, like, right about to start another chapter, and you didn't even know I'd taken a break, but I did. And, you want to know something? I started a goddamn Instagram for this podcast, y'all. And I made two consecutive posts right after I made it. The first was just, like, pictures of the books I'd read so far, and the second was, like, a summary of the podcast. Hopefully I get, like, more listeners or actual listeners. I don't, I don't know. I only knew that, like, one person was listening to my podcast. And then they got busy, so they weren't listening anymore. So it's been a while since someone has listened to this podcast, I think. Wait, someone listened to episode 19. Who were you? Was that me accidentally listening to my own podcast? Nah. Anyway, so let's hope the podcast gets me some publicity. I almost said publicity. I don't know. I don't even know. Plubussy? Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Okay, I'm just going to continue, because I'm digging myself a hole. Chapter 4 What I'm about to show you, said Sergio, has remained hidden from the eyes of the world for many, many years. Only a select and worthy few have ever laid eyes on this document, and you, Daniel Laszlo, have passed your initiatory trial. Well, having passed your initiatory trial, will now join that select fellowship. I was back in Sergio's office my plans for the day having taken another unexpected turn. I'd been so engrossed in the Salgado Mackenzie story that, without noticing, I'd ridden the train all the way to the end of the line and then back to the same station I'd started from just a few blocks from the library. After apologizing for, to Sergio for lying to him that morning, I told him what had just happened with the story, that it had drawn me in so completely that I'd lost track of my physical existence in the world. Very good, Sergio had said. Very good. I think you're ready now to hear the portions of my story that I withheld from you yesterday. We'd then walked down to his office, where he'd removed a yellowing, business-sized envelope from a secret pocket on the inner wall of the filing cabinet. Sergio now held that envelope upright at the front of his desk. I wish I could tell you, Daniel, he said, that the reason nobody else has seen this document is because a sinister cab... Cabal, the Illuminati, maybe, or the Rosicrucians, has worked for decades to suppress it, and that I only obtained it myself by deciphering a series of obscure clues I found concealed within the world's most treasured works of art, 
Clues that led me to a labyrinth in our archive below a centuries-old cathedral, where I snatched this document from its malevolent keepers at great risk to my own life. But the truth is, I found this document in a box of, of garbage, and nobody else knows about it because nobody else cares. He set the letter flat on his desk and raised his hands in a gesture of ret rhetorical surrender. Nevertheless, he went on, stand standing the envelope back up on its edge, I would ask you, are the forces of indifference any less sinister than those of of hooded cultists bound together by arcane oaths to uphold ancient and bloody agendas? I would say no, mainly because I don't believe that these secret cabals really exist. Indifference, though, is all too real. Indifference snuffs out idealism and enables tyrants. Indifference consigns millions of fascinating men and women to the dustbin of history. Indifference swallows people like you and me into its gaping maw, never to release us. That's what we're fighting against here, Daniel. He waved the envelope at me. The story of how I got my hands on this document, said Sergio, picks up where yesterday's story left off. My unexpected meeting with our Edward Salgado Mackenzie had re really rattled me, prompting some intense soul-searching, as you can probably imagine. It also kicked off a four-year rough patch in my life. First, I lost my job because my editor was under government pressure to kill a story I was working on, and I wouldn't give in. This wasn't the Trabalador. I'd moved on from there. I'd rather not say which paper it was because the editor's still around, and I don't really blame him for what he did, because those were, were complicated times. The upshot, though, was that when I lost my job and became very disillusioned, was that I lost my job and became very disillusioned with journalism. I told you that I'd moved on from the Trabalador. I'd been fired there, too. I'd been fired there, too, actually. I shouldn't obscure that fact. Office politics of a very different variety. What? Office pol politics of a very different variety in that case. Eh. Anyway, I was sick of all that and ready for a career change. And maybe I could have found work in another paper. Or maybe not. But I decided I wasn't interested. I also got divorced around this same time, after being married for just 15 months. Her name was Dina and she was a theater critic for one of the big newspapers. A really terrific woman. I don't know. I don't really want to go through all the details again, or my theories of what went wrong. Things did go wrong, though. We both made mistakes and treated each other poorly, just shabbily, and were both devastated when it got to the point when we realized that neither of us could stand the sight of the other anymore. We wanted it to work, you see, and we thought it would, but it didn't. During all this time, I was also trying, and failing, to track down Edward Salgado Mackenzie. The morning after that party, I called everyone I knew who'd been there. None of them knew Salgado Mackenzie. I called the organizers of the convention, hoping he'd been a registered attendee, but no such luck. I wanted so badly to speak to him again, to apologize or try to work out what had actually happened be between us. I wrote a long letter to the old post office box address I had, but he never wrote back. I wasn't sure if the box still belonged to him. Well, eventually I found a new job, albeit a temporary one. An old friend from the Trabalador kept put me in touch with an extravagantly wealthy steel baron who was looking for someone with good research skills and a familiarity with pulp magazines. Agreeing that I certainly fit the bill, the steel baron and I arranged a meeting in over Cap Caparina's 
at, gla at his glass and metal beach house, the man explained to me that he collected vintage literary erotica. Okay. Say you're horny without saying you're horny. Hang on, I lost my spot. There I am. To his knowledge, he had one of the finest collections in the world. A recent uptick in business, though, had left him short on time to pursue this hobby, and the thought of all the books and magazines that he wasn't collecting, that were simply moldering in storage rooms and used bookstores, was driving him a little crazy. Erotica, he explained, was such a fleeting genre. By and large, library... By and large, libraries, museums, and other archives expended scandalously little effort to preserve such publications, and if he and other like-minded individuals didn't collect the books and magazines themselves, they would be they would be lost to humanity forever, doomed to rot in landfills or burn in garbage fires. He said he understood his hobby might seem strange to me. I told him it didn't. Not at all. I explained my lifelong interest in the work of Salgado Mackenzie and the and the similar frustration I'd encountered as I'd searched for his work in the highly disposable medium of the pulps. Thrilled that I understood, the steel baron hired me on the spot as his official acquisitions agent. He gave me a handwritten list of titles he hoped to obtain, and I set to work. I enjoyed the job, although it ended up being very short-lived. My employer quickly realized that 80% of the joy he'd taken in his hobby had come from the thrill of the hunt, and to farm that part of the process out was to deprive himself of great pleasure. Still, while the job lasted, I was very good at it. I knew all the best places to look for old, disreputable, disreputable magazines and cheap anthologies. Most pulp presses trafficked in multiple unsavory genres, science fiction, true crime, horror, erotica, so many of the contacts I've developed in the publishing world during my decades-long quest for the works of Edward Salgado Mackenzie were able to point me toward the obscure titles that my employer wished to acquire. I was also fascinated by the stories themselves. While many of them utilized hack hackneyed premises and premises involving nurses, school teachers, and, lib and libidinous dukes, some of the more obscure stories featured scenarios as, as novel and elaborate as anything I'd ever encountered. I read stories featuring... How? Why? Tim, you were doing so well in this book. Why? Wait, did Tim Workus even write this book? Now I'm confused. I just confused myself a little because it's... I can't tell if this is like a POV piece. Or if this is, like, genuinely his friend or whatever wrote this. But anyway, how- why? Oh my god. There- why is there always the most awkward things to read in these books? I swear to god. There was, like, the heckin' rat in the underwear and Raul dolls, the witches. There was the entirety of- the Heartbreak Messenger by Alexander Vance. There were like age things in distant waves. There was the horny lines in My Sister's Keeper. And now this. You don't know what I'm about to read. 
I read stories featuring telekinetic nipples and lie-detecting scrotums. I read stories of nude astral projection, of invisible orgies held in empty deserts, of shape-shifting lovers alternately confounding and fulfilling their partner's desires with their ever-mutating forms. I read about yodeling vaginas and penises turned to gold. I read an erotic homage to Borges entitled The the erogenous library of Babel, in which an infinite ziggurat contains a living catalog of every sex act that could ever be imagined. Each piece in the catalog embodies a steamy, or in a few cases, very, very cold, coupling, or tripling, or quadrupling, and so on, of wildly ecstatic participants. These carnal tableaux are curated by a rigorously trained order of scholars whose understanding of human lust, over time, reaches divine transcendent heights. Why? No, I'm gonna torment you with that again. Torment myself with that again. Yodeling vaginas. You. No. 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 Why? Why? Why are horny people like this? I thought my sister was about to barge into my room. <laughs> she better not be about to barge into my room as I'm rereading to myself for the sake of torment telekinetic nipples and lie detecting scrotum. What is a scrotum again? What is that? Yeah, I'm googling this. What is a scrotum? <laughs> scrotum sack? Oh, it's the ball sack. It's like what holds... <laughs> It's what holds the testicles. <laughs> I thought that was what it was, but I couldn't I couldn't remember for sure. Wait, wait! Why would you have an orgy in the goddamn desert? In the sand? No! The sand! Dudes, if you're gonna be doing horny shit, Stay away from the desert unless you're in a building in the desert. If you're just going at it in the sand, then like I, you're gonna you're gonna have problems. Okay. <laughs> How dare this book implant cursed rat thoughts? I'm not gonna talk about them. We're just moving on. These stories explore territories of the human imagination I never knew to be so vast, so intriguing, or so delightful. As I said, the job didn't last long, but the experience proved invaluable to me for two key reasons. The first was that it led me to my current vocation as a librarian, a career I found far more satisfying and suited to my talents than journalism. The second is this envelope, which I stumbled upon completely by accident. A few weeks after I accepted the gig with the Steel Baron, I got a call from a publishing friend who wanted to let me know that the owner of Venus House, a small press that had specialized in pulp anthologies, erotica mainly, as well as some science fiction, had just died. 
Apparently, the apparently the man had kept in the second bedroom of his apartment a copy of every book he'd ever published, and this weekend his nephew would be auctioning it all off to whoever was interested. I thanked my friend for the tip and immediately informed the steer baron. My employer said he was very interested and instructed me to buy as much of the collection as I could. Given my employer's deep, deep pockets, I was able to buy all of the deceased publishers collected erotica, allowing with some reluctance the few boxes of science fiction he'd accumulated to be divided among the other attendees at the auction. It turned out that buying these books was the easy part of the job. When the boxes arrived at his library, the Steel Baron instructed me to catalog each new volume, to read every book from every box, and to write a one-sentence summary of every story in every erotica anthology that, that, that Venus House had published. My employer was paying me well, though, so in spite of the staggering tedium that lay ahead of me, I acquiesced. Even with some judicious skimming, it was exhausting work. I mentioned before that some of the erotica I encountered through this job truly impressed me. This was not the case with the fiction perv pervaded by, by Venus House. The publisher's hallmarks seemed to be uninspired cliches offered up at prices so low that they made the stories ban banality sufficiently acceptable to its consumers. Up to this point, the job had felt like a lucrative busman's holiday, but now I was truly working for my wages. I was about halfway through a bo box of Naughty Nurse Anthologies, one of the publisher's most popular series, and feeling increasingly certain that if I read one more lazy description of heavy breasts beneath crisp white uniforms, my brain would get up out of my skull and walk away. Then I, then I picked up Naughty Nurses number 27, Bedpan Babes, and stuck to the back cover. I found this. Sergio raised his eyebrows, tapping the envelope on his desk with, with both forefingers. In the moment, he said, I was so focused on the task at hand that I detached the envelope, obviously affixed accidentally, and was about to toss it aside without a second look. I set the letter down, and that's when I saw the return address on the back, Edward Salgado Mackenzie, followed by a familiar post office box in Sao Paulo. I couldn't believe it. For a second, I wondered if I'd fallen asleep. The nurse stories, soporific powers having finally overwhelmed me. But no, I was instantly cautious, with, conscious, with three cups of coffee coursing briskly through my veins. The letter was addressed to Venus House and remained unopened, trying not to get my hopes up. After all, the envelope was too small to contain a story. I carefully slid open the seal and, briefly savoring the moment, removed the unread letter. Sergio smiled at this memory, and then held out the envelope to me. Go ahead, he said. Look inside. Chapter 5 9th of May, 1976 Dear Mr. Lobos, I am an avid reader of the science fiction published by your press. Through a looking glass darkly, an anthology of al alternate realities contains one of my all-time favorite stories, Felipe Val Valentine's a Harsh Cry at Midnight. I also greatly admire a novel you recently published, Alas, the Stars by Emilia Monte Montenegro, whose scope and ambition challenged and inspired me. For these reasons, I believe Venus House would be an optimal publisher for a long gestating project of mine. Strictly speaking, The Infinite Future is not a novel. It is, instead, a prose poem epic that discerns in the imagined empires of the future the germ of humanity's eventual henosis, its sublime and terrible union with the infinite future. 
It is, in other words, a prophetic text on par with the Holy Bible or the I Ching. To be clear, the union, the union that the infinite future prognosticates, humankind's sublime kenosis, will not be achieved through the contemplation of warm homilies and gentle proverbs. No, such a union can only be brought about through a bracing immersion in certain truths so occult and so challenging that the workaday world cannot now perceive them. And from what source do these supernal truths flow? Thick and sweet as honey, they flow from the life and teachings of one Irina Sartorian, a 23rd century space captain who in the twilight years of her storied life was received four times, in vision or in actuality, she could not say, into the presence of the divine and elusive beings who shape and govern our vast and unfathomable universe. Sartorian's accounts of these divine encounters are, or rather will be, as I speak of things that are yet to come, unparalleled in their majesty and insight. The infinite future, however, does not contain Sartorian's accounts of these visions, nor does it present a straightforward biography of the illustrious Sartorian. To engage such grandeur would so directly would be, to the mind of the average reader, equivalent to staring directly at the sun. For just as that blazing star that holds our simple earth in its orbit burns the eyes of those who gaze directly upon it, the unthinkable visions of Irina Sartorian sear the souls of any who have not been prepared, properly prepared to receive their glories. It is as an initiatory text, therefore, that the infinite future functions, preparing the hearts and minds of a blindfolded generation to be filled with a stark and challenging light. More a single-volume library than a unified narrative, the infinite future pre presents devotional poems, clouded prophecies, scriptural ex exegesis, exegesis? scholarly histories, mystic visions, and slippery allegories composed by various and sundry disciples of Sartorian in the centuries and millennia after her death. To briefly delineate just a few of these narratives. 1. The Visio of Hantin Hantin. The oral history of a humble Crintonium miner who received indescribable visions of Sartorian's inner being while trapped in a collapsed mine shaft for three days with no food and very little water. 2. The Agony and the Ecstasy of Sister Ursula. An account written by a galactically revered non-historian whose attempts to reconcile her scholarly methodologies with her Latin mystic impulses is made all the more urgent by the approach from without, a, from without of, a host, of hostile armed forces and the pressure from within of a long-kept secret that has tormented her for decades. Nebu 3. Nebula Songs. A collection of psalms written praising the wisdom of Irina Sartorian and comparing her glorious ministry to the, to the cloudy splendor of a distant nebula. 4. The Apotheosis of C.G.J. Gamma, an allegory composed by an early follower of Sartorian in which an ambulatory robot claims to have achieved self-awareness through a felicitous irregularity in his programming. When asked to prove this by an interplanetary panel of scientists, the robot refuses. Instead, it hijacks a long-distance trans transport vessel and sets out to explore segments of the universe that have never been visited by humans. 
Its pilgrimage is described in such a way as to simulate for the reader the experience of being a self-aware machine. And those are only four of the legion of prophecies, visions, and wisdom books that together for form the infinite future, a volume whose significance will one day re reverberate throughout all of space-time, where the sages of eons past sought theos theosoph theosophical truths in homely seer stones and Aztec mirrors of pure obsidian. Those seeking such mystical insights today must turn their gaze to the infin infinite future, a work as uncompromising as stone and as effulgent as cut gems in the noonday sun. Be warned before you embark, however, that books cannot be unread, and, as much as you might wish to, to after absorbing the sublime and horrible truths contained within these narratives, there will be no returning to the prelapsarian state of innocence that constituted your existence before experiencing, before experiencing the infinite future. If this project interests you, it would be my pleasure to send the full manuscript. I thank you for your consideration. Sincerely, Edward Salgado Mackenzie. What? Chapter 6. I still remember that moment fondly. Right now I'm studying for the bar exam. Not right now, right now, obviously. Right now, I'm writing this introduction. It's 11 o'clock at night, and I'm alone in the galley kitchen of my apartment. I'm writing right now because after bombarding myself for 13 hours with sample MBE questions, I'm too keyed up to go straight to bed, and the writing helps me ease back into thinking like a human again. Studying for the bar exam feels so different from what I was doing, or trying to do, on that research trip to Sao Paulo. Generally speaking, I don't look back on that period of my life with any degree of nostalgia. Financially, my situation was grim and about to get grimmer. Artistically, I was floundering, slowly coming to the painful realization that I didn't have what it takes to write a novel. Personally, I was lonely. I was so cloistered during my post-undergrad years in Provo that, existing, that my existing friendships had dissolved in, in the acid bath of my solitude. Romantically, things were just as bad. I'd broken up with my girlfriend of two years the night after we both graduated from BYU, my, ostens my ostensible reason being a desire to date other people before we committed to anything more serious, when in reality I hadn't wanted her there as a witness to the death of my once bright potential. I'd regretted the decision almost immediately, but by the time I called her three months later, she'd already started seeing someone else. And finally, spiritually, I was stagnant. stagnant. I'd lost my missionary zeal long before and had failed to replace it with anything more compelling. Failure en encroached from all sides. I thought a lot during this time of some advice I'd once gleaned from a wilderness survival manual. Apparently, if you ever fall from a great, great height into a large body of water, it's very important that you clench your anus. <laughs> ah! Make a note of that, everybody. The manual didn't explain why. My best guess is that if you're falling from high enough, the water might tear right through your guts if it finds a way in. But I'm no doctor, and that's just a guess. In any event, it's one of the most depressing pieces of advice I'd ever come across. To be clear, I'm not saying it's a bad idea to clench your anus if you ever find yourself in that situation, or even that it's not important. What I am saying is that if you're ever jumping or falling from a very high place against your will... 
then things are really not going great for you. And while some people might find it symbolic, symbolically inspiring to maintain control over whatever elements you can, no matter how dire the circumstances, stiff upper lip, tight sphincter, etc., for me that clenched anus is rife with nothing but pathos. Sure, it might help you a little, but really it's just a reminder of how terrible your situation is. That, in a nutshell, is how I remember the Provo Donut Shop years, a free fall during which all of my grand plans amounted to so much anus clenching. There were moments, though, that, ho that, however briefly, offered something more. The first time I read Edward Salgado Mackenzie's novel proposal was one of those moments. The sheer bravado of the document was contagious, infecting me, at least for a few minutes, with a robust confidence. What this novel promised was no less than a gateway to enlightenment, a path that the innermost secrets of a path to the innermost secrets of the universe. Also contained in this promise was a hint of danger that I couldn't quite pin down, but on the whole, the proposal, rather than repel me, endowed me with a small glimmer of hope, both for my future and humanities. I had to read this book. You can imagine the thrill I got, said Sergio, when I first read that letter. Yeah, I said. The strange energy of the document had my hands jittering with excitement. You see, this letter confirmed something I'd been unwilling to acknowledge, even to myself, said Sergio. The fact of the matter is, though I'd never been a religious man, Captain Irena Sartorian had, over the years, come to inhabit a place of reverence in my soul. Beneath her generic similarity to so many other fictional space captions, captains, she pulsed with something unique, something intriguing. In empty and difficult times throughout my, my young life, I often found my mind turning to Sertorian not so much to wonder what she would do in my shoes, but simply to contemplate her being, to dwell in her imagined presence. Doing so filled me with a bristly kind of peace, for lack of a better way to describe the feeling, a grounding in something potent yet ethereal. As I've already mentioned, this connection I felt to Irina Sertorian, my... This connection I felt to Irena Sartorian, a non-existent person, deeply discomfited me, and I refused to admit to myself the great significance she'd gained in the inner recesses of my of my being. Though I was perfectly comfortable professing my enthusiasm for Salgado Mackenzie's stories as compelling fictions, even I could recognize that this connection to Sertorian was a bridge too far. And so I kept and so I kept my strange faith buried, nourishing it only occasionally with quiet reveries on Sertorian's occult divinity, and otherwise refusing to fully acknowledge the depths of my devotion to this fictional being. <sighs> then I read that book proposal, and everything came to the surface. If I developed delusional attitudes surrounding Arena Sertorian, at least I knew now that they were shared delusions. Salgado Mackenzie himself recognized, or should I say instilled, the self-same mystical qualities in the, in the intrepid space captain that I discerned over my years of reading. It was indisputable, and so, of course, I had to find the infinite future. I needed to absorb its teachings and discover where this discipleship might lead me. My life had a purpose again. I got on the phone immediately and called everyone I knew who'd been involved in publishing during the 70s. I figured if Salgado Mackenzie had, 
had queried Venus House, he had probably contacted other presses as well. Well, I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear that the search went very poorly. Most of the people I spoke to just laughed when I asked them about Salgado McKenzie's book proposal. Did I realize how many queries passed through their hands on any given day, they'd say. And I was asking them to remember one specific query from the 1970s written by some nobody. I'd tell them yes, I was, and to please call me if they remembered anything. The futility of my quest was not lost on me, but still, it was the happiest I'd been in years. Even contemplating the concept of the novel filled me with a faint, otherworldly light. I could only imagine what the text itself would do. One Saturday, I, I stopped by the office of Vanda Sores, a friend of a friend from school, who I'd learned recently had worked very, very briefly as an assistant editor with Luso Galactica, a small science fiction press, now defunct. Now she wrote telenovelas and did very well for herself. I showed her the letter, and she said, Yeah, I remember that book. I was taken aback, certain that she was confusing The Infinite Future with some other more prominent novel, but she insisted that this was a query she remembered. <coughs> I said, Did you see a manuscript as well? Yeah, she said. Cardoto. The editor came out of his office one day holding a query letter that had ended up on his desk by mistake. I thought he was going to be angry it ended up there, but he'd read it and told me to contact the author and request the novel. It would either be brilliant or a train wreck, and Cardoso was dying to find out which. So I wrote to the author, Edward Salgado Mackenzie, and requested the full manuscript. It showed up within a week, and I kid you not, the manuscript was a foot high. When Cardoso saw it sitting on my desk, he laughed and told me to read the first ten pages. If they seemed brilliant, like earth-shatteringly good, then I should read some more. Otherwise, we'd send it back. So, I said, we sent it back, she said. I wish I could say I remember anything else about it, but I don't. I probably would have forgotten this incident altogether, except I only worked there three months, so that experience stands out. I asked Vanda to sh some follow-up questions, but she, th but that was really all she remembered. I thanked her profusely for her time. I realize it may not sound like much, but Vanda's sighting of the manuscript was all I needed to keep me going. It meant that the infinite future really existed, that I wasn't chasing a phantom, and I've been on the novel's trail off and on ever since. My devotion to Sartorian has only grown in the meantime, as has my yearning to read the sacred tome that her elusive creator has composed for her. Now, Sergio reached under his chair for a brown paper package I hadn't noticed when I'd come in. This, Daniel, is where your apprenticeship begins in earnest, he said. He handed me the package. Go ahead, and go ahead and open it. I unwrapped the paper packaging and found a fat purple binder inside. Built to capacity with photocopied pages, I breathed in the smell of fresh toner and new possibilities. Is this it? I said. You mean the novel? said Sergio. No, absolutely not. I must not have hid my disappointment very well, because Sergio amped up his pitch from, from there in a valiant attempt to, to maintain the energy level in a stuffy little room. He said, what you have there is a comprehensive collection of every story Edward's, Edward Salgado Mackenzie has ever published. And here's what you're going to do with it. A twofold mission, if you will. 
First, translate the stories into English. You need to familiarize yourself intimately with the story's contents, and I can think of no better way to do to do so than translation. Second, you're going to search the text for, for clues pertaining to Salgado Mackenzie's biography and potential current whereabouts. As interested as I was in the in the in the in the As interested as I was in the infinite future, this was starting to get a little overwhelming. The spell cast by Salgado Mackenzie's query letter, query letter was already wearing off, allowing my own failed novel and Wayne Fortescue's belligerent threats to pull my heart earthward. On top of that, Sergio was going too big with his pitch, addressing me as if my time and attentions were his to command. Behind the forcefulness, though, I could sense cold desperation. So I take it you haven't found the novel yet. I said, hedging his commission, still unsure to what extent I wanted to entangle myself in this quixotic scheme. The infinite future continues to elude me, yes, said Sergio, but just as Galahad pursued the grail and novelist yearned for the blue flower, I continue to seek the quintessence of Captain Irena Sartorian. And this is supposed to help you find it? I said, searching through his stories, I mean? I hadn't meant to, to sound so incredulous, but Sergio caught my tone and his body tensed. I've recognized that the chances of finding the infinite future by this method are slim, said Sergio, but unfortunately, the more promising avenues of investigation have led nowhere, and this is what's left. So, I want very much to find Edward Salgado Mackenzie and his long-lost novel, and if that involves grasping Grasping at straws, then I will grasp at those straws as tirelessly as the situation requires. I can understand that, I said, hoping to smooth things on over. I don't think you can, said Sergio, the mood in the, in the room turning sour. Not yet, anyway. Chagrined, he looked at the overstuffed binder I held in my lap. I can see how this all might be something of an imposition, he said. No, I said. It's not. It's just a lot to take in. Which was true. Yes, said Sergio, looking suddenly exhausted. Yes, it is. Chapter 7 Six weeks after I got back from Sao Paulo, the Wayne Fortescue situation came to a sulfurous boil. I'd spent three weeks dodging his emails before deciding that the best way out of this mess was just to give the CAC a novel. It didn't need to be good. It just needed to exist. My plan was to write very, very quickly. Just type, actually, without pre-writing or revision or thinking too much at all. I'm a pretty fast typist, so I managed to produce an 80,000-word manuscript in about 19 days. Rest assured, the quality was terrible. Just abysmal stream-of-consciousness babble that would make, that would make even Karok blush. Here's a mercifully brief sample, littered with half-remembered quotations from Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Elder Byrne, several paces behind Elder de Silva, breathed heavily as they trudged up the hill, and with each breath he drew the hot, dusty air of the favela into his lungs, air that, in spite of its heat, failed to thaw the cold indifference that clutched Elder Byrne's chest, an indifference that inured him to the sights that surrounded him, sights that might otherwise have kindled a warmth in him. The stray dog with only three legs and mangy fur, the woman hanging her faded laundry, the gang of children chasing a downed kite, the crumpled lottery ticket, and other things like that, like a po like a pipe he saw lying on the side of the road, the kind of pipe that is smoked, 
not the kind through which water or gas might run. And all of these things converge to inspire a non-reaction, or at least a non-warming reaction in Elder Burns' chest. Four days after I emailed him a copy of the novel, I got a phone call from Fortescue. I just finished reading that manuscript he sent me, he said. I waited for him to go on, but he didn't. This didn't bode well. And, I said, bracing myself. Through the speaker of my phone, I could hear him breathing, each exhale almost a growl. Can I ask you something, Dan? said Fortescue. He spoke softly, but sounded like he wanted to crawl out of my phone and smash my face against a wall. Of course, I said. Again, he waited to respond, letting the silence creep ominously forward for a few beats before asking me, How stupid do you think I am? Another long pause told me he was not asking rhetorically. Zero, I said. Zero stupid. He said, that's very interesting, Dan, because after reading that 300-page pile of garbage, they can only assume that you think I'm some kind of imbecile. It's a rough draft, I said. Rough draft nothing, said Fortescue, ablaze now with righteous indignation. What kind of scam are you trying to pull here, huh? You think because we're a religious organization, we're not going to notice when you try to swindle us? Just a naive bunch of Bible beaters? Is that what you think? Is it? You think you can take our money, piss it away, and we'll be fine with that? No, I said, standing my ground. I don't think that, but the thing is, with grants, they usually- Don't try to change the subject, Dan, said Fortescue. What's at issue here is that your so-called novel fails to fulfill the terms of our agreement, and yet you appear completely unwilling to return the money we loaned you. See, that's the thing. I said, I've been doing some research, actually, and the fundamental definition of a grant is that it's an, an award of non-repayable funds, so it's not clear to me. I'm going to stop you right there, said Fortescue, before you waste any more of my time. Fundamental definition of a grant? You know what you should have done instead of dicking around with online dictionaries? You should have reread the contract you signed, where you'll see... Well, you'll see it very explicitly stated that if the novel you produce does not meet our standards, then the funds we awarded you convert to a loan, repayable on demand, with interest and penalties for late payment. Then why call it a grant, I say, working up some righteous in indignation of my own? That doesn't make any sense. If it doesn't make sense, then why did you sign the contract, said Fortescue. He had me there, no getting around it. Obviously, I should have read the contract more clearly. I have nothing more to say for myself. Get the money together or the coalition will be forced to take action, said Fortescue, and hung up the phone. The next morning, Fortescue sent me a statement calculating how much interest had accrued on the $7,000, more than I would have expected, and reminding me that if payments were not forthcoming, the consequences would be dire. By this point, it was as clear to me as... I'm sure it is to you that the young religious novelist Grant was some kind of bizarre scam. Unfortunately, though, his seemed to be a legally binding one. After reading through the contract, I discovered that every condition Fortescue had mentioned was there in black and white, with my signature at the bottom ratifying the entire document. If there was a way out, I couldn't see it, and since I couldn't even begin to afford a lawyer, that was that. I could either pay the money or face the wrath of the CAC. 
And really, even there I didn't have much choice. I was broke, and so paying them back was not an option. I told Fortescue as much in, a, in an email, and then braced myself for the consequences. For several weeks, I heard nothing from Fortescue or the CAC, which scared me even more than Fortescue's bluster had. Wherever I went, on my way home from church, or biking to work, or even checking my mail, I kept half expecting to be ambushed by muscular thugs who would break my fingers and burn my skin with cigarettes. At night, I only half slept, willing myself to stay alert to any noises that might signal an intruder's entrance into my dark and vulnerable apartment. At the flower shop, I regarded customers with a wary eye, vigilant for any sign that might betray them as CAC goons sent to surveil my place of business. But for two weeks, I didn't see or hear anything suspicious, and I began to half wonder if Fortescue had decided to leave me alone. Then one day, I came home a few minutes early from work and found a woman I'd never seen, seen before rummaging through my underwear drawer. Hey, I said, reaching for my phone. Hey, Danny, she said, apparently unconcerned by my presence. Is that what people call you, Danny? Like I said, I'd never seen this woman before in my life. She was about my age, maybe a few years older, and couldn't have been much more than five feet tall. She wore a gray suit and a green blouse with one of these ruffles down the front, but what really caught my eye were the black leather gloves on her hands. Not bulky burglar's gloves, ideal for lifting heavy appliances, but slim, elegant assassin's gloves, intimately tailored to the fingers to the fingers so as to not interfere with the precision knife work or the squeezing of a pistol's trigger. I'm calling the police, I said, more frightened now than surprised. Although she hadn't yet produced a gun, I couldn't help but imagine one tucked away beneath that smart gray blazer. You don't want to do that, she said, lifting the mattress off my lifting the mattress off my bed and sweeping her arm under it. You'll only embarrass yourself. With the emotionless of a emotionlessness of a seasoned professor professional, she dropped my mattress and then crouched down to examine the stacks of CDs next to my bed. She wrote something in a steno pad she held in her left hand and stood up. I took a step back as she passed me, the possibility of violence still hanging in the air. What are you doing? I said, unable to resist asking, despite my discomfort. At my desk, she opened my laptop and turned it on. It's fine, she said, looking directly at me for the first time, taking me in with dispassionate shark eyes. And with the CAC. This was not fine. You work with Fortescue? You work for, for you work for Fortescue? I said. I work with Wayne Fortescue, she said. She waited for my laptop to finish booting up. Then she wrote something down and closed the laptop. Listen, I said. I'm really going to call the police if you're not out of here in like five seconds. She said, if you were going to call the police, you would have done it already. Oh yeah? I said. Yeah. She said, and for your sake, it's a good thing you haven't. I'm not breaking any laws here. You agree to all of this in your contract. Agree to what? I said as she lifted a fistful of pens from the mug on my desk and then looked inside the empty mug with those dead eyes of hers. She replaced the pens, and then one by one, she picked up the books from my desk and, holding them spine up, flipped their pages to see if anything would fall out. Only my bookmarks did. She wrote, a, she wrote that down. I'm cataloging your assets, she said. 
your meager assets, I should add. The contract stipulates that if you're not forthcoming with the scheduled loan repayments, the coalition is entitled to a thorough catalog, prepared by a party of their choosing, of everything you owe. Furthermore, more, the coalition is not required to provide you with advance notice of this cataloging, and in signing the contract, you grant the party of the coalition's choosing express permission to enter your residence, whether or not you are present at said residence at the time of the cataloging. So, here I am. The contract again, of course. She opened a kitchen cupboard. Is this a rice cooker? She said. Yeah, I said sitting down at the edge of my unmade twin bed. Does it work? She said. It did the last time I used it, I said. She wrote that down in her notebook. She gave my fridge the once-over and then opened the freezer door. Come on, I said. The freezer? Do you really need to know how many chicken pot pies I own? She poked around with her pen and made another note in the Stano pad. You'd be surprised what people keep in their freezers. She said, I once found $12,000 worth of heirloom jewelry under a bag of mixed vegetables. There was nothing so glamorous in my freezer, though, and she shut the door. So what are you? So what are you? I said, some kind of burglar for hire? I'm a lawyer, she said, pulling the refrigerator away from the wall and then running a gloved hand up and down its back. In-house counsel for the coalition. Then I take it you're responsible for the contract I signed, I said. I wish, she said, bracing herself with a wide stance and pushing the fridge back against the wall. It's an excellent contract, elegant, muscular, and airtight. I have tweaked a few passages here and there at my employer's request, but not enough to claim authorship. Sadly, it really is a beautiful document. She wiped the dust from her gloves on my kitchen kitchen dish towel. It's funny you say that, I said, because the attorney I've hired tells me the contract is so flimsy, flimsy it'll fall apart the second we step into a courtroom. She looked at me with a patronizing smile and said, We both know you're not meeting with any lawyers, and even if you were, no lawyer that you could afford is going to find any wiggle room in that document you signed. Trust me. She walked across the room and opened the flimsy accordion door that separated my cracked toilet and dripping RV shower from the rest of the apartment. She lifted up the lid of the toilet tank and looked inside. Then why the gloves? I said. Huh? She said, replacing the lid of the toilet tank. She picked up my shampoo bottle from the damp floor and gave it a vigorous shake. The gloves, I said. If this, so, if this is so above board, then why are you wearing gloves? It's cold out, she said. Not really, I said. Plus, we're wearing, we're inside. Okay, she said. So, yeah, I'm wearing gloves. I would be stupid not to. I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but here it is. I'm coming into your apartment totally blind, right? I have no idea beforehand what kind of person you are, other than you're someone who can't fulfill his financial obligations. And I know I'll be going through your, through your stuff, but what I don't know is whether or not this is a clean person I'm going to be dealing with. Are there going to be, I don't know, used needles hidden in piles of trash or something? I mean, that's an extreme example, but even just garden variety deadbeat filth is not something I want to be getting all over my hands. Hold on, I said. Let me finish, she said. I don't want that on my hands, and I don't think that's an unreasonable aversion. 
That said, in your case, you have a reasonably clean living space. You are obviously a lonely person, and your apartment does make me sad, but nobody could accuse you of being a slob. She pulled my desk chair to the center of the room, climbed up on it, and ran her hand over the, over the top of the light fixture. Are you just about done here? I said. She looked around. Let's see, she said. Kitchen area, sleeping area, bathroom, desk. Check, 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 and check. Tiny one-room apartment. Makes my job a lot easier. Are we done then? She got down from the chair and pulled it back to the desk. What's the deal with that binder, by the way? She said, pointing to the collection of Salgana McKenzie stories that Sergio had given me. It's nothing, I said. You realize that only makes me more interested? She said. It's a translation project. I said. They're photocopies of stories by a Brazilian science fiction writer. Nobody's heard of him. What's his name? She said. Eduardo Salgado Mackenzie, I said. Never heard of him, she said. Like I said. She considered this for a moment. A translation project, she said. Yeah. Good, she said. I'm happy to hear you're pursuing something so lucrative. It's not about money, I said. Clearly. She stood there a moment, hands on her hips looking around my apartment. I did notice, she said, that you have some orange juice in your fridge. Do you want to offer me a drink? And so, totally discombobulated by this request, I did. I didn't own a couch. There wasn't really space for one anyway. So the two of us sat at the edge of my bed, each with a mismatched cup of chilled orange juice. Is it Danny or Daniel? She said. Or Dan. You never answered my question. Danny's fine. I said, having given myself over to this warped logic, to the warped logic of this unexpected, unwelcome interaction. Danny, then, she said. Christine Vores. Nice to meet you, I said. Very polite, she said. Can I give you a piece of advice? I don't see why not, I said. And this is totally off the record, she said. Sure, I said. Give Fortescue the money, she said. Just do what you have to do. Get the money together and give it to him. He's going to get it from you one way or another, and the longer the process drags on, the more humiliations lie in wait for you. A nice piece of unbiased advice from Fortescue's own lawyer. I said, I told you, she said, I don't work for Fortescue. I work for the CAC. He and I both do. And anyway, are you aware that the penalties accrue weekly? Weekly, Danny. If you don't have the money and I know you don't, then borrow from your family. It's embarrassing and awkward, I know, but trust me, it's the cleanest way out of this. No one in my family has that kind of money just lying around, I said. That's my advice, she said with a shrug. Take it or leave it. I appreciate that, I said. I also have to say, she said, you seem a lot smarter than the other grant recipients I deal with. I don't know if you actually are a smart person, but you've got one of those competent faces. I'll get you a lot further in the world than you might think. She turned the juice glass in her hands. What I'm saying is that is you can do better than this. She waved her hand in a little circle that dismissed everything inside my apartment. Ditch the writing. Ditch the translation. Put that competent face to better use.
like breaking into people's houses. I said as snidely as possible, hoping that a thick layer of sarcasm might conceal the delight I felt at being praised by someone I barely knew. I wasn't even sure if it was a true compliment, what she just said, but even her acknowledgement of the appearance of potential in my person exhilarated me. She also wasn't wrong about how I'd been spending my time. What good, after all, was fictional writing? What good was translating? What kind of freedom had either of those pursuits ever given me? I caught myself, though, before this line of thinking carried me too far from whatever sense of principle I still possessed. Here I was, lapping up praise from someone who made her living preying on the desperation of others. It's a stepping stone, said Vors in response to my jab. The CAC is very well connected. I'd never heard of them before I got the grant, I said, still fighting back envy for the life she led. Exactly said Vors, and drained the rest of the orange juice from her glass. Ten minutes after she left, my hand started shaking and I couldn't sit still. I'd been so caught up in the strangeness of the situation while Vors was in my apartment that the magnitude of the intrusion hadn't fully registered. While she'd been cataloging my things, her nonchalance had had a more or less more or less placating, placating effect on me. If she wasn't bothered by the situation, why should I be? Now that she was gone, though, that same lack of effect felt much more dangerous. Was she comes some kind of sociopath? Should I fear for my physical safety? Was it still okay to sleep here? Vors knew how to get through the door without my permission. Once inside, what other, what other nefarious deeds was she willing to commit with those gloved hands of hers? I moved my desk in front of the door, and thus barricaded in, my next impulse was to hide the purple binder full of Edward Salgado Mackenzie's stories. Its monetary value was virtually non-existent, but at the moment it was my most valuable possession. I realized that hiding the binder was an exercise in futility. If for some reason the CAC wanted to find it, they would, but I had to take some action. I owned two cookbooks at the time, The Joy of Cooking and Skillet Dinners for One, a 30-year-old volume that I had picked up for 50 cents at a thrift store a few months earlier. Skillet Dinners for One was published in a three-ring binder format, which would serve my purpose pur purposes perf perfectly. I pulled open its rings, removed the recipes, and replaced them with the photocopied pages from the purple binder, and then modified the mod... I then returned the modified skillet dinners to its spot on the counter next to the joy of cooking, where it at least where it had at least a small chance of avoiding detection. Although I had abandoned, once and for all, writing fiction of my own, I'd gotten a lot of satisfaction over the past several weeks from translating Salgado Mackenzie's stories. More than anything else, translating reminded me of doing a crossword puzzle. I spent plenty of time frustrated, straining to find the best word or phrase in English to approximate something from the Portuguese, but when I did, when I landed on a fitting gloss, it was like deciphering one of Will Schwartz's foxiest crossword clues, an epiphanic, of course, followed by a rush of satisfaction. The best part of the process, though, was spending so much time with the stories themselves. I hadn't pegged Salgado Mackenzie as a writer whose work rewarded such close attention, but the more carefully I read his stories, the more I enjoyed and admired them. I was especially taken with his ongoing portrayal of Captain Irena Sartorian, especially the way in which each new story added another wrinkle to her ever-shifting persona, a mutable characterization that should have felt sloppy, but instead compelled me, drawing me deeper and deeper into the fictional universe that Sartorian occupied. 
I still remember some of those stories very well, even all these years later. For example, there's this one where Sartorian encounters the Church of the Blessed Ex Excreta, a persecuted religious group that has taken refuge on, on Cuna, a fringe Minoan desert planet. Basically, these people worship human feces, which is why they're so reviled, and at first, Sartorian finds them pretty off-putting as well, because frankly, given their beliefs, who wouldn't? The more time she spends with the members of this church, though, the more she respects them, and is even drawn to their tenets. One thing in their favor is that the members of the church are actually very clean, because in outward practice, they don't treat their feces any differently than non-church members might. Sanitation-wise, they have toilets and sewers and everything else, because part of their religion is that feces must be respected. It's not totally accurate to say that excrement is their god, but they do view feces as a potent and far-reaching force in the universe. In support of this belief, the church points out that feces must be carefully managed. Otherwise, it can lay waste to entire civilizations as a carrier of illness and disease. And on a more personal level, feces play a salvational role as the vehicle by which excesses and impurities are removed from the body. In light of these two irrefutable truths, then, the Church of the Blessed Excreta, Excreta, oh, that makes sense, follows a complex liturgy that allows them as a community of believers to publicly acknowledge and celebrate their subservience subservience, subservience, there I go, to human waste. Each evening, they meet in small groups to sing hymns in praise of healthy digestion, and once every 12 days, they meet in larger groups to conduct a ceremony known simply as the journey, in which a church member is selected by lottery to walk blindfolded through an up elaborate hedge maze meant to symbolize the upper and lower intestines, while the rest of the congregation looks on from raised bleachers. Okay, I, I'm so sorry. This is the weirdest thing I've read in a while. It's like, at least the other moments were pretty brief where it's just like, yodeling vagina, and then we move on pretty quick. This is like, fully going into the church of shit. The religion of shit. That's that's what this is, okay? I'm gonna- I, I can't. If this is an actual religion, I'm scared for the paths that humanity is going down, okay? Not to, like, be shitty against anyone's religion, but this- This is just- this is- I don't- I don't even know. This is cult behavior. Cause, like, I, I don't even know. Is- please- if someone knows, please, for the love of everything holy, tell me this is just made up for this story. I, I, I don't know what I would do if this was real. I think I might, like, jump out a window or something if, like, the Church of the Excreta was real. Extra was real. Like, I... Oh my god. Why? Why, humanity? Why? Why must you take my faith in you so consistently and shove it down the fucking toilet? That's not a joke. Not intentional for what this problem is. That wasn't an intentional joke.
Just like, haha, toilet funny. That wasn't the goal, okay? That was that wasn't the goal right now. But it 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 happened. I can't just like stop because I'm having a mental breakdown. I'm not actually having a mental breakdown, don't worry. Because I'm having a problem. That's better. Because I'm having a problem with people worshipping shit. Like, oh yes, Taco Bell. What a great shit I had. Praise be to shit. What the fuck? Like, I can't. I can't. No. No. Don't do this. Don't do this. Just don't. Just... No. Outwardly, Startonian keeps her distance from these proceedings, but when her crew finishes its repairs of their ship, the Sirke, it's with some reluctance that she leaves behind the planet of the Church of the Blessed Excreta. As she's walking away, one of the church members pulls her aside and presents her with a medallion of the ceremonial hedgemaids. Tears in her eyes, Sartorian slips the medallion into a pocket over her heart and says that she'll always remember it, always keep it close. And it's her reaction that sticks with me, her affinity with the cult's tenets. It was a cult! Which the story never really explains. The point is that it paints Sartorian as being open to the mystical, a characterization that then gets contrasted in in another story I remember well, one where Sartorian is portrayed at her most analytical. Basically, in this other story, Sartorian and her crew fall into the clutches of a malevolent and hyper-intelligent prospector, and in order to escape Munan, the old mining planet where he's holding them captive, Sartorian has to solve a series of complex riddles. What's tricky, though, is that these riddles sound more like rambling anecdotes than tightly constructed puzzles, so Sartorian has no idea which details to pay attention to and which ones to ignore. The prospector is just sitting there in his rocking chair telling a seemingly interminable story about three sisters who traveled by mule through one of the planet's deepest canyons. When he pauses his account, looks at Sartorian, and says, Now tell me, which sister was tallest, which sister was ill, and which sister spoke only in lies? Oh, wait. When he pauses his account, looks at Sartorian, and says, Now tell me, which sister was tallest, which sister was ill, and which sister spoke only in lies? Sartorian is flabbergasted by this question, and tells the prospector that there's no way to determine the answers to those questions based on the mean during story he's just told her. He insists, though, that all the information was there, and she just needs to put together the right pieces. Eventually, she does. It's a Sherlockian performance on the part of both Sartorian and Salgado Mackenzie, requiring the intrepid space captain to recall that a certain brand of tobacco carried by the sisters was produced exclusively by the Tropian Empire for a brief period in the years leading up to to the Great Aragon War. Once she summons that bit of trivia, though, the rest of the pieces click into place, and Sartorian is able to correctly identify which sister was tallest, which sister was ill, and which sister spoke only in lies. The prospector is stunned by her success and presents her with two more riddles, each one more rambling than the last. Each time, though, Sartorian is able to solve the puzzle, which infuriates the prospector. He'd been certain he could outsmart Sartorian, and his rage at Sartorian's triumph leads to an amazing set piece, the story's climax, in which Sartorian and the prospector 
track each other through a labyrinthine crystal-walled mining tunnel that is slowly filling with water. Anyway, translating these stories excited me, scratching my creative itch in a way that fiction writing no longer could. I read dozens of Portuguese-language Wikipedia articles on space travel, astronomy, and science fiction so I could get a feel for the register of the language that Agatha Mackenzie used, whether it was more colloquial, more technical, or imagining blend of the two. I spent money I didn't have on a multi-volume Portuguese dictionary that traced the history of each word it defined, and I could lose myself for hours constructing elaborate charts that tracked how, in each instance, I translated a word or phrase commonly used by Salgada Mackenzie. El asiento sentio sorades de Marta, for example, became she longed for Mars in one story, and she felt a warm nostalgia for Mars in another. This wasn't sloppiness, though. Each bit. Each variant made sense to me in the context of the story that contained it, a phenomenon that further illuminated for me the, the enchanting elusiveness of language. In addition to finding joy in the technical aspects of translating, I'd begun to discern that, discern that Irene Sartorian, something of the mystical power that Sergio dis, had described to me back in Sao Paulo, Sao Paulo. It was nothing dramatic, not like I was experiencing visions or deep, transcendent emotions. But when I thought of Irena Sertorian as I translated the stories, something about how she fit within and reacted to the odd machinations of Salgado Mackenzie's plots, I did feel a kind of low-grade joy, again, with a hint of danger, pulsing through my body. Of course, I told myself that the only reason I was experiencing anything unusual was because I was exper expecting to experience something unusual, primed as I'd been by Sergio's wild account of his own relationship with these texts. Regardless of his source, though, this strange joy drove my translation work, pushing me through story after story in pursuit of whatever secret spark animated Irena Sertorian. It's a testament, then, to the CAC's sinister powers that they ruined translation for me, too. Christine Dvor's visit to my apartment shook me up enough that when I sat down that night to translate, I couldn't do it. The story was a good one, too. Zertorian gets captured by a vengeful theater troupe that forces her to watch a tedious staged reenactment of her alleged war crimes. But I couldn't move. Couldn't open the multi-volume dictionary to check a definition. Couldn't uncap my ballpoint pen couldn't turn the gears in my brain that processed the Portuguese source text. All I could do was think about Vore's visit and what the CAC's next move might be. If they were trying to mess with my mind, they were doing a great job. After the break-in, a fear enveloped me, dank as the air inside a forgotten ter terrarium. I would get home from work, push my desk in front of my apartment door, and then spend an hour or two trying to translate a new Salgada Mackenzie story before giving up and going to bed, where I'd sleep for 12 hours in a welcome stupor. The enthusiasm I generated over the previous weeks was rotting away to nothing. Three days into this unpleasantness, I got an email that broke the spell. It was not from Wayne Fortescue. It was from Sergio Antunes, and its subject line read, I found him. Chapter 8. Daniel. I hope this message finds you well, and that you'll forgive me for dispensing with further pleasantries. I have pressing matters to discuss with you. About a month ago, I was reviewing a list I'd made of every fictional place name mentioned in Salgada Mackenzie's work. I'd analyzed this list before, searching for anagrams, cryptograms, any hidden message that might serve as a clue to the author's identity. 
In the past, these analyses have yielded nothing, but this time I stumbled upon something intriguing. On a whim, I decided to reach read each place name aloud, but to do so using American English pronunciations. As I did, I rewrote the names to reflect these pronunciations, using more conventional, simplified English spelling so that, for instance, Iona, the horrifying city of wax where Sartorian and her crew battle a horde of murderous sculptors, became Iona. Okay, I'm just gonna say what the spelling is so that you can know the difference. So, Iona spelled originally is A-H-Y-O-N-A-A, and then it turns into I-O-N-A. And Nampa, a swampy military outpost, became Nampa. Yet again, going to read out those spellings. Originally, G N A. M-P-U-H turns into N-A-M-P-A, and so on, with all of the names from the list, and then cross-searched for these transliterated names against lists of cities in the states of Iowa, Indiana, Illinois, and Idaho. You might remember that one of the editors I spoke to reported a rumor that Edward Salgado Mackenzie hailed from the United United States, specifically from a stake beginning with the letter I. To my great excitement, I found several close matches between my brief transcribed list of fictional cities and a list of actual cities in the state of Idaho. No other state, I searched all 50, yielded even a fraction of the matches that Idaho did. The gem state, it seems, figured prominently in Salgado Mackenzie's imagination. But why? I was careful of this at this point not to jump to any conclusions. His reliance on Idaho city names as sources for science fiction for science fictional locales could mean that he was born in Idaho or lived there, but it could also be a private joke, or a purely random selection, or, I'm willing to admit, a complete misreading on my part. In and of itself, this connection was compelling but inconclusive. Around the same time, though, I was pursuing another, unrelated line of inquiry, searching for a story, story by the Strugatsky brothers, Strugatsky brothers that I'd heard great things about but never read. I don't read Russian, and this particular story has never been translated into Portuguese or, Eng- or Spanish. I also couldn't find it in any of the English language collections of their short fiction, so I started asking around to see if anyone else had stumbled across a translation of it anywhere. A friend told me he thought he remembered reading it in a Cold War era anthology of Soviet science fiction published in the States called Faint Constellations. All he could recall about the book was the Strugatsky story and the anthology's flag-waving introduction, which derided the very stories the book contained as indisputable specimens of Soviet inferiority. This anthology wasn't easy to find, but I eventually tracked down a copy at a library in in Porto Alegre and placed an interlibrary loan request. When the book arrived, I was very pleased to find the Strugatsky story I'd been looking for. Even more exciting, though, was the inclusion at the end of the anthology of three short stories written by Latin American writers. In an introduction to this final section, the anthologist explained that all Latin American countries, whether you'd admit it or not, harbored Soviet sympathies and an ardent desire for the kind of one-world socialist government that threatened the very foundations of democracy. 
Arising as they did then from such febrile aspirations, the three Latin American stories included in the anthology could never measure up to the work produced by this by their senior North American counterparts. The reader would be well advised to note that their patent inferiority and learn from their author's mistakes, both ideological and aesthetic. As fascinated as I was by these sentiments, I was more excited by the stories themselves, or rather, by one story in particular penned by, you may have already guessed, our own Edward Salgado Mackenzie. It was one I had read before, all quiet, all dark. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> So the treasure here was not the story itself, but rather its presence in the anthology. Here was a bevy of new leads, a publisher, an editor, a translator, all of whom may have had contact with Salgado Mackenzie himself. The first two leads proved fruitless. I could find no record of Faint Constellation's publisher, Eagle's Landing Press, anywhere I searched. More frustrating still, the book's editor and introduction writer, probably the same person, had chosen to remain anonymous, thus cutting off another promising av avenue of pursuit. Fortunately, the anthology did credit its translators with a small print byline at the end of each story, and so it was that, and so it was that at the end of All Quiet, All Dark, I found the name V.H. Kimball. Fully expecting to be they meet again, I was delighted to learn that V.H. Kimball not only exists in the public record, but also remains an active and prolific translator. I emailed her through the publisher of her most recent translation, The End of Days, a novel by, by Josefa Navarro, the contemporary Spanish writer, contemporary Spanish writer, and asked if she was the same V.H. Kimball who had translated Edward's Edward Salgado Mackenzie's All Quiet, All Dark for Faint Constellations, a collection of Soviet science fiction. Three days ago, I received a response. I am, said her brief email. What can I do for you? I explained my interest in Edward Salgado Mackenzie and asked what she could tell me about the anthology's publisher, or about its editor, or better still, about the reclusive author himself. Had she any contact with the man? Had she any contact with the man? Her reply began as follows. Edward Salgado Mackenzie was either a raving crank or one of the greatest minds of his generation, and the fact that I never got to find out which haunts me to this day. Daniel, I could barely contain my excitement. I reread that first line twice, just to make sure my eyes were not deceiving me, before I continued reading. It was a messy little incident, fraught with betrayal, shame, and typewritten manifestos, but before I get too far ahead of myself, let me answer your questions in the order you pose them. First, the anthology's publisher, Eagles Landing Press, was the, was the publishing arm of the Grand Sons of American Liberty, a far right-wing advocacy group that had something of a heyday during the Cold War. Their notable achievements include protesting the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the civil rights movement generally, calling for the dissolution of the ideological, ideologically suspense American State Department, and generally making mainstream conservatives very uncomfortable. Through Eagle's Landing Press, they published a handful of books meant to further their ideological mission. Nonfiction works, mostly, if nonfiction is the right word for those dogmatic, poorly researched screeds. They published a few works of overt fiction as well, Faint Constellations being one of them. The anthology's editor was Roger Ash, an ardent GAL member and, and the uncle of Karen Ash, a college roommate of mine. 
This was the early 1980s, and the grandsons of American liberty were experiencing a steep decline in popularity. Bank Constellations represented one of several desperate, desperate attempts to reach new audiences. In this case, readers of science fiction with underexplored far right wing, wing sympathies. When Karen contacted me about translating Bank Constellations, though, I had no idea the project was connected to the GAL an organization I was all too aware of thanks to a handful of enthusiastically affiliated relatives on my father's side. I don't think Karen knew either, actually. She told me her uncle was putting together a science fiction anthology for a little publishing company he knew of and was looking for someone to translate a story from Portuguese. It would be my first professional translating job, so of course I said yes, even though my Portuguese was fairly shaky at the time. I was majoring in Spanish, double majoring actually, Spanish and history, just finishing out my undergrad, but I'd taken a couple of Portuguese classes and I figured I could pull the job off. I told Karen I'd do it, and within a week or so, her uncle sent me a copy of the story, mimeographed from the magazine it had originally appeared in. You'd probably like to know how Roger Ash encountered this story in the first place, and come to think of it, so would I. As far as I know, he'd never been to Brazil. Included with the story was a was contact information for its author, along with a handwritten admonition from Ash not to contact the man unless absolutely necessary. I got started right away. I'd taken a class or two on translation, so I'd done this kind of work before, although not professionally. I was familiar enough with the process, though, to notice that this was a strange story. I'm not talking about the content, although that was strange, too. Something to do with murderous, futuristic house painter and a wandering rocket captain. I'm talking about the prose style itself, which rejected the long sentences so common, as you know, in Spanish and Portuguese and for a more terse English approach. Much of the story, in fact, read as if it had already been translated, but from English to Portuguese. Not wanting to produce an unnecessary back translation, I called Ash and asked if he was sure the originals the story's original language was Portuguese. He said that of course it was, at least as far as he knew. Anyway, I shouldn't worry about it. He seemed very uninterested by the question, but this was my professional reputation at stake. If my first published translation was of a story originally written in English, I would be very embarrassed. Despite Ash's admonition, then, I decided to contact the author directly at his Idaho address, an address that had only added to my suspicions about the story's source language. In my letter, I told Mr. Salgado McKenzie that Roger Ash had hired me to translate All Quiet, All Dark, an opportunity that I very much appreciated. I said that I had more admired the story's inventiveness. I then noted the qualities I pointed out to Roger Ash on the phone and asked if, by chance, an English-language version of the story already existed. Mr. Salgado McKenzie got back to me very quickly, within a week, if I remember right. His envelope was much fatter than I expected, containing a long, long letter, over ten double-sided, typewritten pages. His response began very formally, thanking me for my attention to detail and confirming that, yes, Portuguese was the story's original language, and no, no version existed in English, not yet at least, but he trusted that in my capable hands a fine translation would soon come forth. So far, so good. Then the letter took an abrupt philosophical turn. I have a theory, Salgado Mackenzie wrote, that when two human beings enter into a deliberate relationship with one another, be it professional, personal, or otherwise, they become connected by a long, invisible filament that can never be severed. He went on to explain that these filaments exist in a purely ideal 
ideational realm whose intangibility did not diminish their significance in the least. To clarify, just as the flow of electricity through light bulbs filaments heats the metal, rendering it incandescent, the flow of energy through a relational filament produces an illumination of its own. Relational filamental illumination is what he called his theory. And a prime example of the phenomenon, he said, was the long combative French... Okay, I was trying to do a voice so you could tell the difference. It's hurting my throat. It's hurting my face. There's so much in this goddamn email. Holy shit, dog. There, there, why is this such a long email? Oh my god, I'm done with the voice. I hope you enjoyed that while it lasted my high-pitched wannabe voice. Oh my god. I should never try to be a voice actor. Holy shit. <sighs> Relational filamental illumination is what he called his theory. And a prime example. And a prime example of the phenomenon, he said, was the long combative friendship between your countryman Thomas, countryman Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, as he called them. Copious energy flowed back and forth within their filament over the course of several decades as they wrestled a new nation into existence. The light produced from this filament, therefore, was stunning. Now I needed to remember Salgado Mackenzie. Now I needed to remember Salgado Mackenzie wrote. That filaments illuminate what is close to, but not directly connected with the two parties, so that the light produced by Jefferson's and Adams' filament did not illuminate the foundational principles of American de democracy, as some might assume. Jefferson and Adams brought these ideas to light more directly, but instead illuminated something much, much bigger. It is a well-known fact, he reminded me, that both men died not only on the same day, but on the 4th of July, a date of recurring significance both to them, both to them and the country they'd invented. And it is by the light of this overly, overly neat coincidence that a colossal hidden truth is partially revealed. The truth, he wrote, is this, that the forces of the universe have a woefully unsophisticated sense of narrative. How else to account for the triteness of the Jefferson-Adams Independence Day death overlap? Such coincidence is the stuff of sentimental melodramas and shoddy, ad shoddy adventure tales, of soap operas and ghost stories. The pat laziness of it practically turned one's stomach. He also wished to clarify, though to do so with proper thoroughness would require an entirely separate letter, what he meant when he referred to the forces of the universe. Forces of, to the forces of the universe, he did not mean God, at least not in the Judeo-Christian sense of the term. Instead, the Jefferson Adams filament illuminated a governing intelligence, although that still wasn't quite the right term for it. Both governing and both governing and and intelligence missed the mark somehow, far more powerful than any Judeo-Christian deity and far more diffuse, if that made any sense. There is a lot more to the theory, pages more, but I've regrettably forgotten what they said. I do remember, though, that the letter ended with a very genuine, heartfelt thank you for sticking with him for so many pages. He said he'd been thinking through this concept a lot lately, and it had been helpful to get it all down on paper, and more helpful still to know that somebody else might read it. 
Up until that point, I'd been very, I'd been ready to dismiss Elgato McKenzie's ideas out of hand, but I found that sign-off so endearing that I sat down on my apartment's faded blue couch and reread the whole letter, all ten typewritten pages of it. The second read left me unsettled. Was this man off his rocker, or some kind of genius? Just then, my roommate Karen got home from her shift at the sa- at the sandwich shop down the street. She sat down at the other end of the couch, put her feet up on the coffee table, and asked me how my day been. Day had been. Take a look at this, would you? I said, handing her the letter. What is it? She said, flipping through the pages. Just read it, I said. So she did. The furrows in her brow growing deeper with each paragraph. When she finished the last page, she handed the letter back to me, shaking her head. Pretty creepy, she said. I mean, the guy's obviously nuts, right? A few minutes earlier, I'd wondered the same thing myself, but something in Karen's tone triggered my inner contrarian, and I found myself disagreeing with her before I could quite say why. I actually think there might be something to it, I told her. Too tired to disagree, Karen said maybe I was right and then went to take a shower. I wasn't as sure about the letter's merits as I'd pretended to be, so I decided a further test was in order. Back in my room, then, I sat down and wrote a ten-page letter of my own, pointing out a dozen or so weaknesses I've spotted in Salgado McKenzie's argument and asking for clarification on a dozen more points that had been unclear to me. The next morning, I I sent the letter off, and then I waited. Here was the reasoning behind my strategy. The thing about crackpots is that they don't respond well to rigorous questioning of their pet ideas, and so Salgado McKenzie's response to my admittedly demanding letter would be a valuable indicator of his general mental soundness and rigor, and so I eagerly awaited his letter. A few weeks later, I received his reply, 15 typewritten pages filled with prose even more gracious and articulate than those of the previous letter. He thanked me for my questions and said he was thrilled to have someone engaging so enthusiastically with these ideas he'd been working through for so long in such stifling isolation. He then responded point by point to my questions, and while his answers were not quite as focused as I would have liked, they at least gestured towards toward compelling justifications for his claims. The letter also included several meticulous hand-drawn diagrams, which for me almost sealed the deal. I wasn't convinced that his theory was completely sound, but all in all, his reply had won me over, so I wrote back again, asking him to clarify a few more points for me. He again responded generously to my questions, and we wrote back and forth like that over the course of several months and a half-dozen letters covering various angles of his filamental theory of human relationships. I wish I could remember more about what the letter said. I just spent ten minutes sitting here at the keyboard trying to dredge something up from my memory, but it's no good. Then, minor tragedy struck. I'd long since finished my translation of Salgado McKenzie's story, and and had almost forgotten its role as the impetus for our ongoing correspondence. It was with no small surprise and dismay, then, then, that I received a published copy of Ash's Anthology in the mail one day. The first shock was the publishing house, Eagle's Landing Press, which I recognized from the bookshelves of my politically vituperative, vituperative grandsons of American liberty-loving relations. Even more upsetting, though, was Ash's belligerently xenophobic introduction to the stories. To have me translate Salgado McKenzie's story without telling me it would only serve as an incidental prop for the grandsons of American liberty's jingoistic claptrap 
Such underhandedness was beggared belief. I was mortified and I was furious. I wrote one letter to Roger Ash requesting that my name be removed from all future editions of the anthology. I wrote another letter to Edward Salgado Mackenzie explaining the situation and apologizing for my unknowing part in it. I respected his story and if I had known what Ash was up to, I would not have participated. I never heard back from either Ash or Salgado Mackenzie. I meant for this response to be shortened to the point, but it's ballooned into something unwieldy. To finally get to your question, then, yes, I was in contact with Eduardo Salgado Mackenzie at one point. With Eduardo Salgado Mackenzie. At one point, I had his address, somewhere in Idaho, but where exactly I couldn't tell you. Unfortunately, I've since lost the letters he sent me. They disappeared along with my high school yearbooks and a set of much-loved china during an unpleasant period of transition in my life that I'd rather not get into here. Eagles Landing Press no longer exists, and neither do the grandsons of American liberty. At least, I don't think they do. Roger Ash might still be around, though. I'm friends with his niece, Karen, online, so I could ask her. I'll let you know what I find out. Until then, Dr. V. Harriet Kimball. I thanked Dr. Kimball profusely for the information, and after five days of eager anticipation, I received this follow-up. Sergio, glad to hear this has been helpful. I have, I have more. I got in touch with Karen, and apparently Roger Ash passed away just a few months ago. I offered my condolences, and Karen said he'd been sick for quite a while, so his death had not been unexpected. I said again that I was sorry to hear he was gone. Karen thanked me and asked why I was looking for for her Uncle Roger. I explained briefly about your search for Eduardo Salgado Mackenzie and his connection to Ash through faint constellations. I said I realized that this was a long shot, but had Ash saved any letters from the Eagles' landing press days? And if so, had anyone hung on to them after he died? Karen said we might be in luck. She said that Uncle Roger had become the unofficial historian of the GAL and had accumulated over... and had accumulated, over the years, boxes and boxes of photographs, pamphlets, meeting minutes, letters, and books from the Society's more active days. He'd meant to write a history of the GAL, but hadn't gone around to it before his health had declined. Karen said that as far as she knew, though, all of those boxes were still sitting in a storage unit in Orange County, California, not far from where Uncle Roger had lived. If I was interested, she said, she could get me in touch with one of her cousins and they could give me the key to the unit. I'd be welcome to take a look. I'm not sure if I've mentioned this or not, but I live in Danesville, Utah, a 10-hour drive from Orange County. So it's not the kind of thing where I could just pop over to the storage unit and take a look. Not normally, anyway. As luck would have it, though, I'll be presenting a paper at a conference in Claremont, California, not far from Orange County, during the second week of October. Karen assures me that there are no imminent plans to clear out the storage unit and that her cousin would be happy to let me look through Ash's papers while I'm in town for the conference. I have to say that in five days since I wrote that last email, I've been thinking about Edward Salgado Mackenzie a lot. I still feel strange about what happened between us. It was so intimate in its own way, and then it ended so abruptly. I still feel a need to clear the air. What I'm trying to say is, I've realized that I've also become a very... Very interested in finding Eduardo Salgado Mackenzie. I don't know what your schedule is like, but if you'd like to meet me in California at the end of the second of that second week in October, I was thinking we could go through Roger Ash's memorabilia together. 
Two heads are better than one, and then follow the trail from there. If I'm stepping on your toes here, let me know. I realize this is this is a project you've been very committed to for a very long time, and I know how that can be. If you're amenable to my collaboration, though, I look forward to working together on this. Sincerely, Harriet. It would be it would only be a slight exaggeration, Daniel, to say my bags were packed before I even finished reading the email. What luck to find another Salgado Mackenzie enthusiast. What a treasure trove of new information. What an opportunity. For years now, I've maintained an emergency travel fund for this very purpose, and I'm pleased to report that the trip is a go. Your government has even designed to Dane to grant me a travel visa. No easy thing, but I have connections. I fly into LAX this coming Monday and fly and fly home out of Salt Lake the Sunday after that. It's a narrow window, less than seven days in which to find Edouard Zalgada Mackenzie, but it will have to do. The reason I'm telling you this, Daniel, is not just to share the exciting news, but to invite you to join the expedition. I trust you've been diligent in your translation work and would serve the investigation well. Time is of the essence, my friend, so make your decision quickly and get back to me as soon as possible. Regards, Sergio Antunes, sub-librarian, Biblioteca Anita Garibaldi. Pretty close to being done with this episode. Gotta do a time check. Okay, 6.30. What's this message? I'm so glad I know how to read Roman numerals. Like, this is random as hell. But all of these, like, chapter numbers are in Roman numerals. So, like, if I didn't know how to read Roman numerals and didn't have that, like, mini obsession for a bit over Roman numerals, then I would be completely lost. I'm going to take a break, though, because my eyes hurt a bit. Break is over. We're finishing this episode tonight. Chapter 9. After reading Sergio's email, it took me all of 20 minutes to pack a bag and reserve a bus ticket to California with my already overburdened credit card. The collection notices from Wayne Fortescue had grown even more alarming, and everywhere I went in Provo, I caught imagined glimpses of, Chris- of Christine Fors crouching behind bushes, lurking in stairwells. For three nights running, I'd woken up in a panic at 2 a.m., convinced I'd felt her gloved hands at my throat, holding it tenderly for a moment before tightening her grip and squeezing the life out of me. Each time, I'd woken up gasping, my apartment empty, heart racing. In California, I'd still be broke. I'd be even more broke, actually. But at least Fortescue and Vores wouldn't know where to find me. And so two days later, a fugitive from my creditors, I found myself standing at the locked door of Roger Ash's storage unit. At my side, Sergio, looking tired and thrilled, rocked from foot to foot with nervous excitement. In front of us, Dr. V. Harriet Kimball, a a short, scrappy woman with the look of a distance runner, somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 years old, consulted a note card on which she'd written down the combination for for the storage unit's lock. After a moment, she turned around, gave Sergio and me a here-goes-nothing shrug, and lifted the door's heavy lock. It would not be totally wrong to say I had gotten off on the wrong foot with Harriet, but I will say that our introduction a few minutes earlier had not gone especially well. 
I'm sure you're familiar with Dr. Kimball's scholarly work, Sergio had said to me. In the split second before responding, I'd noticed Dr. Kimball's narrow face tensing up slightly, as if she were bra bracing herself, whether for disappointment or something else I couldn't tell. I'm sorry, I'd said. I'm afraid I haven't. And her face had relaxed instantly. No need to apologize, she'd said. And please, call me Harriet. As far as my scholarly work goes, I study Mormon history and do some cultural criticism as well. That's why I'm in town, a conference at Claremont at, on mil millenarism in the 20th century church. I presented a paper on the ways in which mid-century Mormon preparedness rhetoric Preparedness rhetoric positions food storage as a metaphorical bridge between temporal and spiritual salvation. That sounds very interesting, I'd said, unsure how I felt about this new acquaintance. Now, standing at the door of Roger Ash's storage unit, Harriet dialed a combination of numbers into the hefty lock and then pulled down. The shackle came free of the latch, and Sergio gave out an enthusiastic ha. An enthusiastic ha! Handing the lock to Sergio, Harriet grasped the, the dusty rope affixed to the, to the base of the door and lifted it open, the metal segments rolling together with a sloppy clatter. Well, said Harriet, it looks like we have our work cut out for us. Morning sunlight streamed into the storage unit, illuminating hundreds, maybe even thousands, of yellowing banker's boxes stacked from floor to ceiling all the way from the back wall. And while thoughts of our tasks likely... Likely futility muscled their way into my mind. Sergio looked appreciatively at all the boxes and said that he had a good feeling about this, that the path to Salgado Mackenzie often intersected with eccentric archives such as this one. I did my best to embrace Sergio's optimism. After all, there were three of us, and we had all day. Maybe we would find Salgado Mackenzie's contact information inside one of these boxes. Stranger things had certainly happened. No time to waste, said Sergio, removing his linen blazer and draping it over an abandoned hand truck. The short sleeves of his Ziggy Stardust era Bowie t-shirt revealed meaty arms that immediately set to work removing the top box from the nearest stack. And so, with meticulous haste, we began sorting through the boxes, searching for any rock record Roger Ash may have kept of his correspondence with Edward Salgado Mackenzie. Box after box yielded nothing we could use, although it quickly became clear that the contents of Roger Ash's storage unit could use could stock a whole library devoted to Cold War paranoia. We discovered hundreds of flyers, pamphlets, broadsides, and paperbacks that explicit that explicated with splashy rhetoric the key tenets of the grand sense of American liberty. It was fascinating stuff, and in spite of the urgency of our search, I couldn't help but peruse every fourth or fifth item that passed through my hands. In one box, I found a pamphlet titled Danger Drips from Your Kitchen Faucet, which alerted its readers to the perils of water flor fluoridation, warning that such mass drugging was only the first small step in a process that would eventually lead to the distribution of mind control chemicals through the drinking water, chemicals that would set the stage for a global takeover by the collectivist New World Order. In another box, I found a paper. I found a slim paperback called *The Inadvertent Arsonist*. The inadvertent arsonist, which accused former President Dwight D. Eisenhower of aiding and abetting the advance of communism during his tenure as commander in chief by instituting policy after policy containing hidden and malicious socialist agendas. 
The cancerous damage these policies inflicted on American freedoms and the integrity of the Constitution was undeniable. The only thing up for debate, claimed the book, was whether Eisenhower committed these treasons knowingly or if he was merely a patsy under the sway of Soviet controllers posing as American patriots. On a more celebratory note, a framed poster-sized poem I found sandwiched between two stacks of boxes told a story of all the flags of the world attending an international flag convention. They're all mingling and talking to each other, but then the American flag arrives and all the other flags go silent. The American flag, which is a little worn and dusty, clears its throat and gives a speech about being just a simple flag for a simple country. And he may not be as sophisticated as all these other flags, but what he does know is that he loves freedom and is trying to do the best he can for his country. The poem ends with all the other flags of the world, duly humbled, bowing down before the American flag. I saw the poem a second time on the back cover of a book making the case for the illegitimate illegality of America's involvement with the United Nations, an organization second only to the Soviet Union in depravity and, anti- and antipathy to the principles of democracy. Another box contained a pamphlet from the early 60s, The Problem with Civil Rights, warning that figures such as Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr. were Soviet agents trained by their communist overlords to unfairly besmirch American democracy with slanderous claims of injustice and oppression. If these complaints were heeded, the pamphlet warned, the very fabric of our Constitution would be imperiled, and the way, we would, be p- and the way would be paved for the arrival of a dangerous new world order. You know, a lot of Mormons really went in for this kind of stuff, said Harriet. She hefted a cardboard box down from the top of a chest-high stack, the ensuing cloud of dust further graying her faded jeans and worn flannel work shirt. She'd been tirelessly attacking boxes since morning, barely breaking a sweat and never breaking her rhythm. Open, sift, close, repeat. She had also been talking nonstop, delivering an incessant series of micro-lectures on selected topics from the world of Mormon studies. In fact, she went on, a lot of Mormons produce material like this for similar organizations. It was a pretty wide-ranging phenomenon. I mean, I'm sure you're aware of Ezra Taft Benson's involvement with the John Birch Society when he was an apostle. I was not aware. I'd never even heard of the John Birch Society, in fact. But what a lot of people don't realize is that he was never actually a member. He aggressively supported them, but President McKay asked him not to join, so he didn't. It was a similar situation with a handful of other Mormon ultra-conservatives. They were very interested in the Birch Society, but never actually joined. So instead, some of them founded little organizations of their own that promoted many of the Birch's key claims, and then fused them with Mormon pseudo-doctrines. There were maybe a half half a dozen of these little societies during the, the height of the Cold War. I don't think the grandsons of American liberty had Mormon roots, but it's a similar deal. Anyway, the effect was, you had these organizations bringing some very, very far right-wing ideologies into the mainstream of Mormonism, fusing them, like I said, with supposed doctrines and passing them off as revealed truths. The craziest part is, we're still seeing the ramifications of that today in the church. It's been, what, 20 years since the fall of the Berlin Wall, and so much Mormon political thought still has one foot in Cold War paranoia. It's fascinating, isn't it? Yes, I said, although really it wasn't, at least not to me. 
As tiresome as I was beginning to find these mini-lectures, though, I did get a stronger and stronger sense the more time I spent with Harriet Kimball that I probably should have heard or heard of her before then, a suspicion that would be confirmed later, as you'll see. I hadn't heard of her, though, and here's an oversimplified but useful di dichotomy to explain not only why I hadn't, but also why our interests diverged so sharply. There are two kinds of Mormons in the world. Mormons who care about Mormonism qua Mormonism, to use the most pretentious preposition I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm aware of, there I am, and Mormons who don't. What I mean is, the first type of Mormon not only practices the religion, but also spends a lot of time and energy thinking about Mormonism itself and participating in extracurricular Mormon-related activities. They might attend church history-themed pageants around the country or listen to treacly Mormon pop music produced for summer youth camps. They might take Book of Mormon tours of Central America. They might blog about Mormon history or sing in regional Mormon choirs. They might take summer road trips retracing, in reverse, the westward migration of the Mormon pioneers. They might also, if they're of a certain ideological stripe, attend Sunstone conferences or read the complete works of Hugh Nibley or Lobby, or lobby for female ordination to the priesthood, greater transparency for church leaders, or changes to church policies regarding, say, gay marriage. Whatever the focus, though, Mormonism permeates every nook of these people's lives. So that's the first type. The second type, the more laissez-faire Mormons, may be more devote, may be very devote, but they are also, but they also compartmentalize their Mormonism to a much greater degree than the first type. It's like they have their professional life, their personal life, their social life, their religious life, etc. But the religious part doesn't bleed into all the others. I don't mean there's a hypocrisy there, or a lack of devotion. That's not it at all. Instead, it's more like there's a holistic concern with being a good person, but the Mormon-specific elements of that concern stay primarily in the Mormon compartment. It's hard to explain in the abstract, so I'll use my parents as a concrete example. They attend church every week. They go to the temple pretty often, the whole thing. They're fully practicing Mormons, but they're also extremely unlikely to spend much of their leisure time doing church-related stuff. Instead, especially these days, my dad will either be watching the History Channel, he's becoming an armchair expert on the Kennedy assassination, or trying to get my mom on board with some DIY scheme he's just read about on the internet. For instance, saying that they should raise chickens out on the balcony of their condo, because wouldn't it be great to have fresh eggs whenever they want it? And my mom, when she's not talking my dad out of running down the farm, down to the farm supply store right away to buy some baby chicks, or whatever the scheme is on any given week, is probably playing or watching tennis with her friend Barb, or if that's not an option, rock hounding, as she loves to call it, out in the red hills of St. George just after sunrise, a newfound passion of her empty nester days. Point being, Mormonism is not the overwhelming focus of their lives. It's one facet among many. And like my parents, I just wasn't plugged into the kinds of conversations and debates that occupied people like Harriet Kimball. In terms of our shared religion, then, we actually didn't have that much to talk about. In all honesty, though, my ambivalence toward Harriet grew less from her long-windedness on arcane points of Mormon history, history and culture, and more from an irrational fear that her presence had somehow rendered me superfluous in the quest to find Edward Salgado Mackenzie and his infinite future. I brought so little to the table to begin with, 
Mostly, I think Sergio enlisted me because I was willing to listen to him talk. And now there was someone with significant experience as a translator, with legitimate academic chops, and with a general enthusiasm to rival even Sergio's. I was redundant, even though, although what I, what the larger implications of that supposed redundancy might have been, I really couldn't have said, I really couldn't have said. There was so little actually at stake, and yet I regarded Harriet with wariness, probing her persona for weaknesses like we were two neck-and-neck presidential candidates, and not just collaborating members of an amateur research team. And as the day wore on, my gimlet eye did detect a weakness in Harriet. Though she spoke freely about her scholarships, she kept her private life, and especially her past, under heavy wraps. For example, at one point late in the morning, I was sorting through a box of leaflets that warned of the perils of automobile safety regulations. At my side, Harriet sorted through a box of her own while delivering a disquisition on Joseph Smith's fascination with city planning and utopian sociality. At a conceptual break in this, le in this lecture, I jumped in, hoping to divert the stream of conversation away from the topic of Mormon studies. Did Sergio say you live in Danesville? I said to Harriet. Setting aside her current box, which she had finished searching, Harriet opened a new one and explained that actually she lived in a cabin at the mouth of Danish Folk Fork Canyon, where she did her translation work. My bread and butter, she added, primarily from Spanish, but also from Portuguese, Italian, and sometimes French. Apparently, the text she translated ran the, ga ran the gamut from technical manuals to comic books to novels to poetry. You have to be flexible if you want steady work, she said. That makes sense, I said, opening a new box of my own. I bet you do, I bet you come across some interesting stuff. I do, she said. Last month I was working on the memoirs of one of the first female bullfighters in Spain. A remarkable story, really. And remind me, said Sergio, wiping the sweat from his from his from his face with an already damp handkerchief and treading unwittingly into forbidden conversational territory. What led you to pursue translating as a profession? Harriet had been pulling a new box from an eye-high eye stack, but now she froze, arms extended, extended, the box hovering at her chest. Did you hurt herself? Hurt yourself? I said, noting the extreme look of discomfort on her face. No, she said, unfreezing. I'm fine. It's fine. You want to know why I translate? Not if that would make you uncomfortable, said Sergio, looking panicked. I said it's fine, said said Harriet, and I got into translating when she shook her head. It was strange to see her so flummoxed. I used to be a history professor, but then I got fired. I'd studied Spanish as an undergrad, so she shrugged and set the box down on the floor, turning away from the two of us. My apologies, said Sergio. I didn't mean to pry. It's fine said Harriet, over cheerfully, but she didn't say anything more on the subject. The more we talked that day, the more clear it became that Dr. Kimball was a woman of many secrets. If our conversation ever veered toward details of her past, she would steer it sharply away, like a ship's captain avoiding a series of jagged rocks just below the water's surface. There was another topic, though, that all three of us were avoiding, the possibility that we not might not find anything Salgado McKenzie-related in all these boxes of papers. We'd been working nonstop since morning, not even breaking for lunch, and that whole time the usually vo voluble Sergio had been a picture of stolid absorption. Mo yeah. 
Moving with a barely contained agitation, his energy so concentrated on the search that he'd uttered only a sparse handful of sentences over the course of many hours. Sergio's frenzy became less and less contained as box after box yielded nothing, yielded up nothing pertaining to our search. His t-shirt grew more sweat-stained. His long, normally neat hair becoming, became increasingly disheveled. Dis- disheveled? Eh. And his eyes grew wilder until he became a picture of quiet desperation. Harriet, too, seemed more affected by our failure as the day went on, her speeches growing less impassioned by the minute, so that by late afternoon she was speaking in a bleary monotone, her lecture on pre-correlation-era Sunday school manual sounding more than anything like a perfunctory filibuster against impending disappointment. I myself was feeling lousier with each passing hour. Just being in Roger Ash's storage unit meant fu- meant spending money I didn't have, and if our search through the dusty memorabilia of the grandsons of America- American liberty led nowhere, I wasn't sure I could handle it. Morale seemed to be at a breaking point on all sides, but then nine hours into our excavation, I justified my presence on the three-person team when, at the bottom of a box of anti-OSHA pamphlets, I found Roger Ash's old Rolodex, its circle of cards yellow with age. Look, I said, holding up the Rolodex like a stone idol. When they saw what was in my hand, Sergio and Harriet literally dropped what they were doing, their cardboard boxes hitting the ground with papery thuds as they bounded over the cluttered ground to reach my side. With Sergio at my left elbow and Harriet at my right, I flipped the dusty card to the S section, four cards in, and there it was, typewritten in faded black letters. Eduard Salgado Mackenzie, 127 Main Street, Fremont Creek, ID. Wonderful, said Sergio. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, you'll get a cliffhanger. <laughs> That's so funny, it's a cliffhanger. That's great, it's a cliffhanger. That's unintentional. That's an unintentional cliffhanger, because I didn't know how that chapter was going to end. And who knows when the next episode will be uploaded because I can take a while to record these, but I I do need to get back on schedule, so who knows? It might be soon, it might be a while. But bah-ha-ha-ha! I'll know what happens next before any of you! Man! I chose a good little hobby here. Because I'm not going to call this a job because I'm not I'm not getting money from it. At least not yet. Maybe next year. Like, quite literally, maybe next year. Um. <laughs> I'm sorry for bullying you over you not knowing what's going to happen. I don't know either. I haven't read this before. But I'll know sooner, so that's why I was bragging. But anyway, thanks for listening. Hope you tune in next time. Bye!